The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on The Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, have you ever been a grumpy little malcontent who's just so tired of how easy it is to get laid? Have you ever lay awake, plagued with the litless existential ennui that fucking and ghosting Manhattan debutantes might be all there is, and just yearned for more? And despite your growing apathy towards sexual fulfillment, would you still trade your 1965 Jaguar Roadster for some put-it-anywhere sex with your stepsister? Just how dangerous does a liaison have to be to get a high schooler interested in sex these days? Well, let's find out. Because today we are stripping down Roger Cumble's 1999 iconic cult teen flick, Cruel Intentions. So sit back, pick a target, and polish off your best search-and-destroy seduction game as we manipulate our way through this adaptation of an ethically scandalous French aristocracy sex novel set in high school. Brought to you by the most dangerous of liaisons, the glory of Catherine, getting your sexual blackmail quota in before algebra, the old it's not incest if it's anal loophole, and the Cruel Intentions 8mm American Psycho crossover universe theory, apparently. And of course, our safe word today is altruism. Anything to add, Benji? I don't know, London. This movie just leaves me so bitter, but there's just so much about it that's just so sweet. It's a whole concoction, a symphony, because it's a bitter, sweet symphony <laughs> nope. that's nope. life. Hard Trying limit. to make ends meet. <laughs> One You're note, man. Just fine. One single real note. Statistically, it's gotta happen, right? Guess not. I'm so sorry. Uh, fuck my life. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Space! Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver with Disappointed! Jesus. Well. Oh, hi, Mark. Patient. London, fuck my life. You're once again right goddamn there. Yeah, I am. I'm not getting used to that. This is weird still. I delight in the torture I put you through. Oh, yeah. Well, speaking of delighting of torture that you put people through, Cruel Intentions. Yeah, I was going to say theme. <laughs> theme. Theming. <laughs> cruel Intentions. Fuck yeah. A little 1999 fun little teenage romp, you know, about the upper class kids in New York just having a grand old time with having nothing else to do but fuck people over. Yeah, so this film was a special request from a listener, and I got super excited when it was requested because I was like, you know what, that was already on my list, and now I have a double reason to force Benji to do it because I love this movie. I love it so much. I had not seen this movie for quite some time, actually. Uh, it's been a hot minute. It's an enjoyable enough film. I think that this is definitely more of a London film than it is a Ben film. Yes, so... Thank you, my dear, for putting in the request. I am with you. <laughs> Here we are. 
We watched it. We watched commentaries. We watched deleted scenes. We read the novel it was based on. You know, took a look at other versions of it that were out there. London watched some sequels, so London got to do the Fuck My Life Film Festival for yeah, once. Yeah, I did. I have seen the sequels, just like in the past. I'm pretty sure I watched them with you and flew into rages when I realized that Cruel Intentions 2 is a prequel. Cruel Intentions 2 is a prequel. I don't know why, but that just sends me into a rage so much. It, why call it Cruel Intentions 2? Should have been called something else. Because it's the second one. <laughs> But it's not the... It's a prequel, though. It came the before the thing. Phantom Menace wasn't called Episode 7. Yeah, because it started out as 4, so it had the room to backtrack, but Cruel <laughs> Intentions was just Cruel Intentions. You'd only go forward from there. Imagine that. Cruel Intentions starts off, and it's like, Cruel Intentions, Episode 4, A New Lay. Yeah. So, yeah, we will be talking about the sequels, the... Really, sadly, not picked up pilot episode from 2016. Yeah, I got all the the stuff. So, meanwhile, though, lightning summary of the main film that we're looking at, the primary one from 1999. It is a movie adaptation of sorts from the French novel Les Liaisons Dangereuses, or Dangerous Liaisons, And yet it is set in high school. So I will talk here in a second about the novel that it is based on. But it is, to start, an adaptation of this really amazingly scandalous French novel that was about two people that just like to fuck with each other and everybody else out of a sense of cruelty and boredom and sadomasochism. And yet we do that with high schoolers. That's just great. So we're going to have... Catherine and Sebastian, Catherine Mortoy and Sebastian Velmont, who are bored upper east side Manhattanites that are stepbrother and sister, and they are going to strike up a bet as to whether or not Sebastian can fuck the new headmaster's daughter, who is coming to town from Kansas City, Kansas, and has written a manifesto in Seventeen magazine that she's going to wait to have sex until she's married. Those fucking Kansas City girls. You got to watch out for them. Yeah, Kansas City's great. And (laughs) Sebastian's going to be like, challenge accepted. And he's going to go for it. He's going to try. Meanwhile, there's some other people that get involved in this bet as well. And this bet is hinged around his car and Catherine slash Sarah Michelle Gellar's ass. That's basically what's on the line here. I mean, we'll get into it. It's never said outright, but yeah, Buffy wants to do anal. Now she's just open to doing anal. She'll let him put it anywhere. Yep. That's a important and famous line. He could just want armpit sex. He might also be like a foot guy. Yeah, or he could be a foot guy. We could take on a whole other like Marquis de Sade angle because Marquis de Sade was famous for wanting to like, in his prose, cut new orifices into people's bodies to create places that they have never been penetrated before. So, all I'm saying, if your mind goes directly to anal, that's some vanilla mind stuff. That Marquis de Sade, he was kind of sadistic in a strange way. Exactly. Uh, Sad sadism, what up? But, (laughs) yeah, how fucked would that have been if they actually consummated the bet? She's like, I'll let you put it anywhere. And he's like, okay. And he slices a hole into her body. Oh, wow. Did not see that coming. Yeah. So that's what we're here for in Cinema (laughs) of Cruelty, making you think outside the box. But yeah, that's going to be our lightning summary. Will Sebastian win the bet? Will Catherine? Will people triumph? Will they die horribly in 
really out-of-nowhere car crashes? We'll find out. But first, best thing. What is the best thing about this movie? Oh, there are a lot of things to love about this film. The costume design, the set design is fantastic. Personally, upon rewatching, the best thing to me about this film is Sarah Michelle Gellar. I just, I love her performance in this so much. I I feel that this movie really is best enjoyed if you look at it as a hyper-reality, elevated reality kind of thing. Looking at it that way, Sarah Michelle Gellar is the most triumphant cast member because her portrayal of this weird, icy woman with strange Machiavellian machinations about all of her friends and family just works so well in the really strange world that this film is creating. Best thing, the characters in this and the performances that are delivered within them and just the beginnings of a particular trope. Because I absolutely love the trope of technically high school aged kids or even younger acting like they're adults. I just have a lot of fun with that concept. So whether that be something like Five from Umbrella Academy, where he's (laughs) even younger than high school, it seems, and he's always walking around in his little suit. Yeah. Or if it's something like Riverdale and Pretty Little Liars, where you've got these students that are dealing with like high school murder parties (laughs) and the adults just don't understand. Like there's something really fun about that. And that's going to happen here in Cruel Intentions. And it's going to be one of the first ones to really go about setting, yeah, this heightened, elevated form of mature melodrama where you're watching these kids and you're like, Are people this cognitively advanced in manipulation Mm. and sex games in high school? I don't know. Who cares? Don't ask questions. Because in some ways, it works best that they're in high school because high schoolers would be this mean and this quickly to fall in and out of love and this sociopathic, but at the same time to be this sure in your sexuality at a time when you're supposed to be like 16, 17. It's it's a fascinating paradox, and I love that. Later on, later in the film, when Sebastian starts to say, my entire life has been a lie. I'm thinking, dude, you're 17. <laughs> Relax, right? okay? You're fine. You got some time. Yeah. Or he, maybe he doesn't, because what is the worst thing about this movie? Well, we're going to have to go there when we get to it. Uh, we'll, I'll just go there now. The worst thing about this movie is that our main character commits a sexual assault, and the movie tries really hard to convince me that he did not actually commit a sexual assault. No, you assaulted someone, bro. My worst thing is the ending. I get why the ending makes this work, and I get why the ending is there, because it's adapted from a source in which the ending is very similar. But at the same time, Catherine and Sebastian, they're like one of my OTPs. I love these manipulative little sociopathic sex addicts or sex fiends. And I want them to triumph. They are my heroes of this narrative. And I want them to have a happy ending where they are able to just carry out their sexual machinations in a semi-incestuous sociopathic union for the rest of time. (laughs) I will say the other worst thing about not the movie, but just doing this is that I know for a fact you own the hat that Sarah Michelle Gellar wears during that park picnic scene in Central Park. And you're not wearing it. You have the hat, and you're deliberately choosing to not wear it while we do this. That's true. It just seems like a missed opportunity. I'm just saying. Yeah, I also have a Cruel Intentions t-shirt that I couldn't find to put on for this. Okay. Well, if you couldn't find it, that's one thing. I know. I'm underprepared in some ways. I spend all of my time trying to cram reading the novel and watching all the sequels that I forgot to look for my (laughs) t-shirt. 
The tortures of the damned. Well, nobody's perfect, and you don't even come close. So, yeah, that's fine. So, Cruel Intentions. Shall we dive into these very cruel intentions in this cinema of cruelty? I just realized that. Yes. I don't think we've ever done a film that has the word cruel in it. No, I don't think so either. Well, all right. Well, okay. So, we're going to liven things up while we get into a graveyard. Yeah. To start this thing off. (laughs) I've completely forgotten about that. This is like a really fun movie to revisit because I had forgotten so many things about it. But the opening shot of this is a goddamn graveyard. Like this crazy aerial photo of zooming over a graveyard as we head into New York City. Yeah, it's a really great shot. It also is soundtracked really, really well because we have placebos, every me and every you filtering in. And I absolutely love that song. I was super into the band placebo when I was in middle school and high school. Like their albums were Mm -hmm. a big part of my musical development, independent from Cruel Intentions. But when then they used it in Cruel Intentions, I got super, super excited. I was going to say Cruel Intentions. If you were a teenager in the late 90s, this movie was a pretty big part of your development in general. Also true. Yes. But (laughs) I happened to be into placebo. I was into placebo before they were in the Cruel Intentions soundtrack. Okay. (laughs) But. (laughs) Oh, God, I didn't think your voice could go more hipster pretentious. But it just did. Yeah. Wow. On purpose, I have that talent. (laughs) I can always get more pretentious. Always. Really? Excelsior. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so we have this really great soundtrack throughout this movie, but we're starting right here with Placebo's Every Me, Every You, and this little 1956 Jaguar, little roadster that is going into the city past the dead. And Mm -hmm. I do like this graveyard setup because it doesn't have like a very specific explicit metaphorical translation exactly but it feels appropriate (laughs) to just be driving over the dead Mm -hmm. especially since this is based on a novel about a lot of old dead things and also just because it does I forget sometimes that the city is set up that way and that a lot of older cities tend to be set up in the way where you have the main city And then the grave sites tend to be pushed to the outskirts. Mm. And one of the famous architectural designs that did this very prominently was ancient Rome. And so Mm. you would have the city of Rome and then the dead would be lining outside of it. And there would be this processional of the one main road into Rome that you would go past all of the dead. And so to me, it evokes this kind of decadence of ancient Rome as well that we tend to as specifically in some of the bigger cities. Yeah, for a lot of structural reasons and sewage reasons, there's a lot of health reasons to maybe like just shove all of yeah. your dead, especially in early you know times, out to the outskirts of the city. But there's also this kind of rejection of the past and the dead in mm-hmm. that way. So I just, it does evoke a lot of cool things. Though that notion of diving into the decadence of New York City is interesting because a lot of readings I saw on the original novel was that it can be interpreted as an examination of the decadence of French aristocracy before the revolution started up of the ancient regime. Yeah, so let's get into the novel here for a second. Sure. The novel, Les Liaisons Dangereuses. Look at you putting that French stank on it. Dangerous liaison. We already established I'm pretentious as fuck in this episode. (laughs) 
Uh, Trayvon. Trayvon. But it is an epistolatory novel, and what that means is that it is a collection of letters, mostly published around 1782, although it initially came out in a couple of volumes, Mm -hmm. as a lot of older literature does, comes out in sort of variant forms. And these letters, what becomes really interesting about them, well, actually, I guess I'll first say that throughout these letters, we get the story revealed of the Marquise de Matoy and the Vicomte de Valmont. And these are our two narcissistic rivals and ex-lovers in the letters. Mm. In Cruel Intentions, it'll make it explicit that Sebastian and Catherine have never fucked before. But in the book, they are ex-lovers that now use seduction as a weapon to curtail their boredom and to fuck with people and as kind of their own love language because the novel does make it very clear that these two at the beginning are very compatible and very into each other Mm -hmm. and so it's extra tragic when Valmont starts falling for this naive pious woman and uh, but yeah Valmont and Mortoy man OTP but (laughs) The thing that is fun about these letters is that although we do know that this guy named Laclos, L-A-C-L-O-S, was the author, initially when these were published, they were published by a pseudonym fake author, and they were published as a fake true story. So if you read the preface, it has the setup of... Well, the publisher has allowed me to compile these letters from the higher courts, and I've edited out certain letters or left certain ones out. The names of these people have been changed to protect their identity. And there are times also where we'll have certain names from third parties that are redacted and omitted. (laughs) And the entire thing is footnoted by the author who is filling us in on things that we haven't quite gotten from the letter exchange. It's like, oh, it's important to know that these two had, you know, recently taken a trip. So would readers of the time have been fooled by this? Would they have thought, oh my God, Look at these very real letters being written. Was this the Blair Witch Project of its day is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I actually am not totally sure on how this was received by the then contemporary French audience other than it was very, very popular. Mm. It was a major seller. A lot of people had copies. So was Blair Witch. Yeah, but it was also scandalous where Mm. there's the idea that you had to kind of read it in the privacy of your room or you didn't talk about it. (laughs) It's publication, distribution, and reception kind of reminds me a little bit more of like Fifty Shades of Grey, where Uh. it was this very scandalous, hypersexual novel that like everybody was reading, but nobody wanted to like fully admit to reading until there was enough people that also kind of jumped on that train. And and I, I don't know. So much like the S&M community with Fifty Shades of Grey, was there some sort of psychological manipulation, you know, group back in the day that's like, oh, this is a horrible representation of what we do. Gosh, you guys. No, because unlike Fifty Shades, which is a really horrendous representation of BDSM lifestyles, but I will also say that as much as I want to be offended as a as a full-time fetishist and pervert by the representation, I also get what it's doing for a vanilla audience, and I won't I would never take that away from a vanilla audience. Fair you enough. know, okay. since Fifty Shades was based off of this Twilight paradigm initially as Twilight fanfic, I find it a really interesting exercise to look at 
sometimes dubious consent power structures that develop in YA literature between sort of young men and women Mm. in those narratives. So I think it's a really interesting exercise. But no, this particular book, their game of psychological manipulation and sexual warfare is on point. It's great. So nobody had any complaints. And there was this idea of scholars way later on that this might be some sort of depiction of the corruption and depravity of French nobility. And yet there's also a group of scholarship that disagrees with that interpretation Mm. just because they say that that might be more of a hindsight reading given to it after the French Revolution because the actual author of this book was in the patronage of this really high aristocrat at the time. Mm -hmm. So basically a high aristocrat was funding this work mm. and French nobility fucking loved this book <laughs> like they loved it so it didn't necessarily seem to be received by the French nobility at the time as a critique on them in fact Marie Antoinette in her possessions did own a copy of this book which they found wow. after she had been beheaded wrapped in a cover that was unlabeled and then like you opened it up and it was the danger so she as well was among the readers and fans so yeah this book was beloved by high society so because you kind of kind of just want to love Mertoy and Velmont because they're just these amazing little manipulated whatever people love their villains you know I will also finish up this first part of the novel by saying so our director Roger Cumble he was also the writer of this adaptation he had never done a movie before But his quote on this is, you have a few moments in your life where you're struck with a good idea. And I was literally outside of a crunch gym on Crescent and Sunset. And I had the idea to do dangerous liaisons set in high school. And that was the beginning from Roger Cumble, where he's like, he was walking out of the gym. He's like, you know what I need to do? Dangerous liaisons, but set in high school. So he wrote this script. What what happened in this gym? I don't know. Was it leg day? I, I don't know. He just said it's the weird times where you're just struck with these inspirations. He just remembers being outside the gym and saying, Fair enough. I got to do Dangerous Layers on set in high school. And yeah, he did. And so he shopped it around. It started out independent, later picked up by Sony under Amy Pascal, who really helped get this jump started and underway. But because he, it was like his little idea, his little project, and he just wanted to do it, it's kind of amazing that out of nowhere, like he gets handed this picture gets to do the picture and he had never made a movie before hadn't even made any shorts and so they gave him a bunch of really talented production people to work with and he kind of just let them do their thing we listened to the director's commentary and i think at one point he says i had never even filmed something for christmas on a home video camera so this guy is as far removed from the physical filmmaking as it could be i know he had some writing Mm -hmm. credits prior to this movie Yeah, and yet this movie is perfection. It just shows that it really was just his entire production crew that kind of just all brought their part of it, and he just kind of oversaw it. Well, let's go ahead and let's meet ourselves a quote-unquote villain, though he is the protagonist of this piece, young Sebastian Valmont, played by Ryan Philippe. He's going in to get some therapy done. He is. We open in the therapy room with the therapist, Played by Susie Kurtz. Swoozy. Swoozy? S-W-O-O-S-I-E. Okay, Swoozy Kurtz. Sure, why not? 
She is also from the 1980s film Dangerous Liaisons. So this novel had been turned into a bunch of different adaptations. One, the one that's most well-known, starring Glenn Close and John Malkovich in 88, I want to say. Uh, 1988, yeah. She was Madame de Volange. Volange? Volange. So she's Boom, Cecilia's that. mother in the 88 version. Oh, okay. And Cumble mentioned that why he did that is because he knew that... This film was going to get compared to the 88 version mm. quite a bit. So he's like, let's just start out right from the beginning, acknowledging that fact. And we'll bring in somebody who is in the movie. You know, it's really weird. A movie that came out the same year as this, The Thomas Crown Affair, had Faye Dunaway in it playing a therapist because the director wanted to acknowledge that it was a remake of a film, Thomas Crown Affair from the 60s, that Faye Dunaway had also had. So you have this weird pattern hmm. of directors remaking films and bringing in someone from the previous film to play a therapist for the express purpose of saying, yes, we know, it's a remake. Yeah, it's just... That's strange. It is a weird trope. Yeah. The trope of the oncoming millennium. Weird. So yeah, Sebastian's sitting there in his therapy room and... All he can think about is sex. That's what he's there for therapy for, is that sex is taking over his mind. I'm like, well, one, you are a teenage boy, so that's <laughs> to be expected. Two, you're only like 16, 17, so how much could you have gone through in order to already classify yourself as like some sort of sex addict? But whatever. And he's looking at his therapist, and she is clearly kind of more of a con man than she is a therapist. Mm. She's constantly telling him things, just these little quips from her book and hands him her book. Yeah, she's really giving him the hard sell on the book. Well, not even the hard sell. She just hands him a copy and oh, says, yeah. like, here, it's all in my book. Go ahead and read this. That's yours to keep. And then she writes it down in her notes, bill for book. And so <laughs> she's clearly just trying to make a lot of money off of him and trying to get him out of her office. Says, like, oh, yeah, I'm going on vacation. So this is our last time we could meet for a while. Forgot to tell you. Didn't my office tell you? Right. So she's not very involved in her patient care. And he's like, yeah, I guess I'll be fine. I mean... Take you, for example, you're a beautiful woman. You have killer legs. I'd love to photograph them. But that was the old me. She's like, yeah, yeah, okay. Like, that's a weird thing to say, but go ahead. And then her daughter calls, Tara Reed, who is crying because there was this guy and he was just so charming. And he kept telling her that she had killer legs and how she loved to photograph them. And... I didn't know that was a, such a charming line. Yeah. Well, it worked on Tara Reid. Okay, but there you go. it's a fun little way of setting up already the manipulation of Sebastian Belmont where he knows the daughter's call is probably impending and he used specific just unique enough seduction tactics and made sure to work those into the mm. conversation with the therapist so that she would immediately make the connection that it was him. My God. And so he's already playing games. We also know as an audience that it is certainly Sebastian because in the background taped up on her computer is a blurred out photo just because we have the focus in the foreground oh, with her field. face. Yeah, sure. But... In the background is the little blurred photograph of Sebastian and his signature sunglasses. And you can tell enough that it is him. So we're like, oh, shit. And he waltzes out of that therapy office that is surrounded by glass walls. So confident 
yeah. to, like confidentiality is not a big thing uh, apparently yeah i i don't know much about therapy i've never been to therapy i'm not a therapist i have no you know academic study in that but you know we we know dr michelle von phd and i think dr michelle von phd would probably make the note that a therapy office that is all glass walls you probably don't do that <laughs> no yeah it's you, not the best here, here's like the question i come away with from this whole sequence why did sebastian do this why did he take photos of this of this young girl put them online and then deliberately go to get a therapy session from her mother. Well, technically he was in therapy first. Okay. And then his therapist, he realized, was overcharging. And so he went and seduced the daughter. He explains this to Catherine later, where she's like, Okay. Why did you even waste your time? And he's like, she was overcharging. And so clearly huh. the retribution for this is to go and seduce her daughter, take naked pictures, and upload them on the internet because... This therapist, what her whole empire and book is based on is good parenting mm -hmm. and how to raise the perfect child. And so he figured, well, I'll ruin your child's reputation and thus yours in the process. So it, it's a whole thing. Because he felt a little overcharged. Yeah, this really super rich asshole. Well, I think he also just felt bored. And because okay, he, he takes every opportunity he can to fuck with people. But yeah, it's this entitled thing of... Well, who can I fuck with next? And he uses sex and manipulation as a weapon right from the beginning. This therapy office also seems to be like in a mall or yeah, something. Yeah, it's a little strange. A therapy office made of glass walls that's at a mall of some sort where the therapist runs out and is beating on the glass like it's the end of The Graduate as Sebastian heads off. Yeah, and as he heads off, he runs into a new chick who has a little matching sweater set on because this is 1999. And so, <laughs> like, The Limited was a fashion store that existed prominently with their matching sweater set. I, I never shopped there. I wouldn't know. Yeah, well, this chick apparently does. And yeah. she's wearing pearls of sorts, so she's a little bit kind of middle to higher class. And he sees her. And he makes some joke about how the woman banging on the glass probably needs some therapy. <laughs> she, she laughs. She finds him so charming. Oh. And he's like, my God, you're beautiful. I'm going to take you to lunch. And she's taken aback by that. All okay. <laughs> and they clasp hands and they walk off into the afternoon sun so he can take her to lunch. I mean, I'm assuming fuck her too. Yeah, probably. He comes yeah. back to his house with her name on a napkin and stuff, but he clearly doesn't plan on seeing her again. So this is just a regular day in the life of Sebastian Belmont. And he's just so wonderfully important. And you can tell by the way that he's dressed. So let's talk here for a second about the costuming that's going to be in this movie. It's, it's something, I gotta say. So... The director wanted everyone in suits and other outfits that kids would never, ever wear. That was his one of his first directions for his costume designer. Mm -hmm. And the costumes are going to be so wonderful. Sebastian just wears suits the whole time. There's a lot of 90s designers in there, some Gucci, some Marc Jacobs. But it's also combined with some of the fashion-appropriate pieces from the 18th century when the novel was published, but then modernized a little bit. In particular, he has this long coat that is more prominently featured towards the end, but mm -hmm. on occasion, yeah, he's in this 
coat, which the costume designer talked about in the commentary as being modeled specifically after this one 18th century frock coat from the Napoleonic period that was very popular in France. And so she took that design and then she you know, built the costume or the extensions of the coat around that. So it's kind of a little bit modernized, but it also clearly has all the distinguishing features of this frock coat. Mm. So it's just a cool way of like mixing that all together. Also, she noted that something that she's proud of, but nobody else will probably ever notice, is that his wardrobe starts out very dark and gets lighter and lighter as the film goes uh, on. Yeah, I did not notice that, but that makes total sense. Yeah, mm. so themes, right? From <laughs> darkness into light. <laughs> And uh, yeah, it's just a delight to see the fashion in this. Catherine's outfits are going to be so spectacular. Most mm -hmm. of those, yeah, were hand-built for the film combining modern Prada and Calvin Klein. Uh, I mean, her. it makes perfect sense when you consider, you know, going back to the 1988 version, everyone is in all of those amazing period outfits that were appropriate to late 18th century France. Most often than not, more often than not, costumes like that, no one was actually wearing full-time back in the day. Sure, maybe the aristocracy was, but your average French citizen, probably not going to take the time to put on all the, the wigs and the coats and the corsets and the business. It just, it's a lot, you know? Well, I just love the idea of these high schoolers wearing suits yeah, and exactly. power suits in particular. This will be something that is carried over and naturalized a lot more in some of the teen TV series, Gossip Girl in particular, Chuck Bass and Blair Waldorf are mm. also heavily based off of the Valmonts and Matoy characters, mm -hmm. both from the novel and from the Cruel Intentions movie. And so you have Chuck Bass walking around in Gossip Girl constantly in these little power suits as well, little pocket squares and stuff. And you're like, you're 16. This is amazing. But Sebastian, having parked his car, I guess, illegally, it's very strange to me that he parks... Someone says, you can't park there, sir, and he just waves them off, doesn't give a shit. Your car is going to get towed, dude. You should do something about that. Just saying. Yeah, I'm assuming that that building probably has a valet I situation. He probably hope that someone immediately after the scene is over is running out to get that car and take it away to a private garage, but nah, whatever. Sebastian heads up, and we meet Sebastian's truly better half. Yes. Catherine. Sarah Michelle Geller. <laughs> Sarah Michelle Geller playing Catherine Mert 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 Power Three Mert Mertoy Mertoy <laughs> Catherine Mertoy, his stepsister. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, what a <laughs> goddess! And I did not watch Buffy too much back in the day, but I know that a lot of people who did saw this movie and had issues with Sarah Michelle Geller. Not really that her performance was bad, it's just so far removed from Buffy that it was kind of a cognitive dissonance moment for a lot of viewers at the time. Let's see. So at the time, I know that Buffy was on TV at the time. I did not watch Buffy initially while it was on. I watched it once I got a DVD set of it later on, right on. and fell in love with it. But Sarah Michelle Gellar, OG role for me, will always be Catherine Matoy. So she's who I think of first and foremost. So this was actually my primary introduction to her as an actress. And I fell in love with her here. So I don't have that cognitive dissonance. Well, I have that cognitive dissonance initially while watching Buffy, where I was oh, like, Catherine yeah. Matoy, like, what are you doing? You're, <laughs> you're blonde and dumb and uh, also great. But yeah, she can do whatever she wants as far as I'm concerned. But right now... 
Sarah Michelle Gellar slash Catherine Matoy is sitting in this deluxe decadent space of their household on the settee, basically. She is also wearing a gorgeous power suit that has the pants and suit coat over what looks kind of like a bustier, like a vest with a little bit of peach-colored lace bustier situation. It's amazing. She's going to wear a lot of lace and chiffon mixed in with, yeah, high-powered suit materials. It's fantastic. And she's sitting up here, prim and proper. She's sitting across the way from Selma Blair and Christine Baranski, who are playing our Cecile and Bunny Codwell. I think in the credits, her name is Bunny. Bunny Codwell, yeah. But only ever Mrs. Codwell in the movie. But then, yeah, in the credits, her name is Bunny. And it's like, of course it is. So, yeah. And this is great. I mean, it's this is such an early role for Selma Blair. If you look at her credits prior to this, it'll be something like girl who is flirted with and can't hardly wait or date number two in some other random ass movie. She was in Can't Hardly Wait? As girl who is flirted with. Huh. Yeah. Right. That's the kind of role she was doing prior to this. So this was a huge breakout role for her. And it's so fun to watch because she's awesome in this movie. Though, what is this character's deal? Okay. Yeah, that is the million dollar this question. This is, I mean, ah, what is going on here? So little Cecile is sitting next to her mother. Her legs are kind of parted. She's wearing a khaki skirt and this t-shirt with this giant koala on it. And that in and of itself, the giant koala shirt, oh, you're, you just got back from Australia or whatever. Well, that, that's great. But the fact that she just seems completely unaware of how she's looking, constantly like spreading her legs out with this short khaki shirt, skirt on. Ha! Ah, what's wrong with this character? This drives me crazy every time I see this movie. I'm actually the opposite, where I don't mind that she's like spreading her legs and just chilling because, you know, you man spread as much as you want, girl. But the koala shirt, I cannot abide that koala <laughs> shirt. It is a heinous <laughs> graphic monstrosity. But yeah, so she is simple, I suppose. Some might say naive. Some might say cognitively disabled. So there's this line that we're drawing here between how dumb is she? I know I said that Jessica Lange's character in King Kong was the dumbest girl, and I take that back. Mm -hmm. This Cecile is the dumbest girl. Good God. But I don't want to call her the dumbest girl because to me, she actually has some sort of cognitive issue. There's something wrong here. But apparently to other watchers, they just take her as naive. So if she's just naive, then she's just super dumb. I I mean, that's what we're meant to be told here. Because I think in the original novel, this is a character who had been in a convent or something prior to this and was being unleashed from the convent so that she could get married. Yes. So Cécile de Varange in the novel is 14 and being taken out of her life in the convent by her mother for the first time. And so it's a lot easier to believe in 1700s France, if you grew up in a convent with a bunch of nuns, that you might not know a whole lot about sex. Sure, sure. And the way that it doesn't make sense if you're like 15 in Manhattan in the 1990s. So we do have her mother that does insinuate that this is going to be her first co-educational environment, that she probably was in Catholic schools or something okay. prior to this as the nunnery equivalent mm-hmm. but okay so i i never went to catholic school because my 
family's very far removed from Catholic and Christianity in general. Yeah, anyone who's been to a Catholic school knows this is not a, a, a space where you are withheld information, maybe by the teachers and the establishment, but your peers know what the fuck is going on. I was going to say, those girls can be amazingly freaky. So I don't believe for a second in the 1990s <laughs> that this Catholic schoolgirl doesn't know what's up. But um, yeah, she apparently doesn't for whatever reason. And Catherine is positioning herself to kind of say... I guess, be her mentor and why she wants to be her mentor, even though it's a scheme, it's a ruse, you see, is because Catherine had been previously dating this total douchebag named Court. Who we see in one flashback scene, passed out, oblivious to the fact that he's getting head from Catherine. Yeah, which we learned from the commentary was Sarah Michelle Gellar's first day of filming on her birthday. <laughs> oh, happy birthday! She got to go out into this car and just sort of slap this dude's face because he was falling asleep on her fellatio efforts. But Court apparently has fallen for the young Cecile and she always gets, poor Catherine always gets dumped for the young innocent twits. And I'm like, uh... I already mm. get the sense that, like, Court might be some sort of, like, weird pedophile. Like, if he is seeing this hot mess of a naive, dumb chick in this koala shirt, like, why? Nothing about Court and his yeah. passed out nature in his convertible sports car and his gray silver suit and his bourbon screams like this would be the kind of girl he'd go for. But whatever. In the novel, what it is, is that Cecile has been brought out of the convent specifically to be married to the Marquise de Motoy's She is ex. betrothed to yeah. him. Yeah. And Cecile doesn't know anything about this guy, really. She just knows that she's been taken out of the convent to marry some dude. And it is insinuated in the novel that, yes, why this guy is interested in Cecile is because he is into that sweet virginal... <laughs> Oh. Like, just barely ripe Do you stuff. know who plays that character in the 1988 version? No. Jeffrey Jones. Who's Jeffrey Jones? The guy who is no longer in films because he was caught passing around child porn. Oh, themes. <laughs> well, there we go. Haunting oh. coincidence. So there oh, we go. Oh, my God. Maybe he went method and never went back <laughs> for the role. But Yikes. Yeah, so she's Catherine's there because she wants to try to wheedle her way into Cecile's life so she can find some way of corrupting her innocence to get back at court because court dumped her because he was like, yo, Catherine, you're a slut and I want this virgin. And she's like, bitch, <laughs> okay, fine, I will ruin her. She's not going to try to do anything to court, just Cecile. Yeah, which is kind of unfortunate. That's mm. the one thing that I don't really respect about Catherine's game is that she goes for the other women. Right, when yeah. She should just be taking Cecile on as a mentee in her sexual exploration because more women should just be more sexually empowered. But well, whatever. You know, the late 90s was a time when the only thing that white women hated more than anything else was other white women. And I'm reminded of that because in this room, we also see a picture of the Clintons. Yeah. Oh, man. So <laughs> Including Bill and Hillary. I'm like, yeah, man, they're white women. They just hated Hillary. I don't know what that was in the late 90s, but man, that was intense. Well, we decided it wasn't Hillary in the picture. Oh, it was it? Catherine's okay. mother, but oh. it was with Clinton. So okay. we've got Sebastian coming in, and he clearly is all lecherous where he sees Cecile. And he's like, my 
God, that's an adorable shirt you're wearing. She's like, thanks. My dad got it for me from a trip to Australia. He's like, oh, how are things down under? Blossoming, I hope. And he clearly kind of moves his whole upper body down to deliberately peer into her skirt. Subtle, not subtle. Yeah, subtle, not subtle. (laughs) Also subtle, not subtle is we have Bunny Codwell, who kind of pinches and pushes her legs back together and tells her, keep your legs closed. This isn't Jamaica. And you're like, whoa, because Bunny Codwell's going to be super racist. Oh, and we've got God. that set up right mm. here from the beginning. That doesn't come out of nowhere later. It's set up right from the start. Ooh. Mrs. Codwell's like, it's time to bounce because your stepbrother Sebastian's here and he's a devious lech. So they leave and Sebastian's just fiddling with stuff in this room, including a picture of Bill Clinton with the rest of the Matoy Valmont family. Mm-hmm. So we've got Sebastian, Catherine, their mother and father, and Clinton in the middle to just establish, I guess, the simultaneously the wealth and position of this family as affiliating with the politics and government, you know, higher ups sure. or whatever at the time, which would have been also the case in the novel, right? We've got these dukes and duchesses oh, okay. and marquises and all of this kind of stuff. Right. So this is yeah. the aristocracy, right? But this is now the 1990s Manhattan equivalent. It's just hanging out with the president. Mm-hmm. And it is specifically a president that is known for playing his own manipulative sex games. Mm. So it's kind of like yeah. solidifying that... The issues of the aristocracy in 1700s France as being seen as lecherous, immoral, and thinking that they are above the people that are below them and able to use those people as sexual toys and objects is actually very translatable to 1990s Manhattan and the higher up political people and the rich within that world. Because mm. we're also talking about much later, not known at this time, but later we'll find that there's that whole connection with things like Bill Clinton and Jeffrey Epstein. And we've got like mm. these whole groupings of people that did all kind of hang out together that are all connected to different potential like sex scandals. So yeah, we've got Sebastian. He comes in with his little napkin from his lunchtime tryst and... This is just one of my favorite, like, just casual moments where he waves it around. He's like, Ugh, Clarissa, call me. And he's like, I'm sick of sleeping with these Manhattan debutantes. Catherine catches this napkin and uses it to wipe her nose because Ugh. she has just snorted a line of coke once the others have exited because she has this little cross, this little rosary oh, this. that holds all of her blow. She, she tells young Cecile... You know, it might sound corny, but whenever I'm having tough times, I hold up the cross. I turn to God. And he gets me through it. Yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah, let's turn to God. Ha! Yeah, God, Jesus, yes, okay. Ah, oh, let's get through the day. Yeah, well, maybe she calls Coke God. You know, some people do. <laughs> it seems to be the way here. But yeah, she holds it in her little rosary cross. The decadence in this house is absolutely gorgeous. Most of the money in this film is going to go into the production design, particularly Mm. the sets and the production locations. Yeah, $10 million budget, and by God, they want to make sure it is all on screen. Yeah, it is beautiful. We've got a lot of lush colors. We have a lot of metallic overlays and trimmings, and... As the director put, he wanted everything to be beautiful except the story. (laughs) You just kind of go back into this as time period piece 
feel as possible, even though it is 90s Manhattan. Luckily, at the time, that look of decadence and opulence and jewel tones were very in in the 90s. And so it fits right in. It seems very contemporary and it seems very time period at the same time. The production designer talked about how everybody had their own tone in the movie, whether it was Catherine Matoy and her blue ice palette and Sebastian is really going to have a lot of those warm burgundies. Annette will have a lot of pastels, and so they wanted to kind of integrate everybody having their own kind of vibe. And also, director really wanted Cruel Intentions to be all about mirrors, and so there are mirrors stashed everywhere. And one of them is really great here, where there's a mirror above Catherine as she's lounging on the settee, so we actually get a double sort of fuzzy reflection of herself above her. So it's just a very cool visual, but a lot of the things... Kind of like Neon Demon. What can be filmed through a mirror will be filmed through a mirror. And this also came from the director of photography really took a lot of point on this particular film and had the regular director go and watch a bunch of Visconti films. And so he did. Kemble went and watched a bunch of Visconti and you can feel it in this movie. So Visconti, for those who are not familiar, is an Italian director who was alongside Roberto Rossellini, the other primary founder of Italian (laughs) neorealism. And we talked about Roberto Rossellini on Blue Velvet. Oh, yeah. And so his whole thing, though, is that he was obsessed, um, or the films that he makes have this obsession with beauty, death, and European history, especially the decay of the aristocracy. I think The Leopard is a really big example of that, which I have seen, I saw years and years ago. But yeah, it's a gorgeously shot film about how life was going to shit for the aristocracy at the time. Yeah, so a lot of the lighting and things that we get in Cruel Intentions were heavily inspired by Visconti's filmmaking. And so if you're a huge Cruel Intentions film fan, maybe go check out some of his stuff, The Damned and Death in Venice and all sorts of things. Death in Venice is just a badass title. I don't know what the movie's about, but that just sounds cool. Doesn't it? Yeah. Now, the plot here, though. Plot begins to thicken a little bit. Yeah, because... Catherine is like, hey, here's the deal. I want you to seduce and fuck Cecile for me. And Sebastian's like, yeah, that's a bit beneath me, though, because I have a different challenge that I want to take on. He whips out a Seventeen magazine, and they flip to a center spread article on Annette Hardgrove from Kansas City, Kansas, who wants to wait to have sex. And this apparently is a decision that is interesting enough to make a two-page spread in Seventeen magazine. And the Seventeen magazine has a picture of Jennifer Love Hewitt on the cover. And so initially, when he throws it down, he's like, this is what I'm into. I'm like, you're going to try to seduce Jennifer Love Hewitt? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I never, I was not an active reader of Seventeen magazine in the late 90s, but I do remember the magazine. And it was very much a lot of fluff pieces for teenagers. So... I could see this being a two-page story about just, I want to wait until marriage or what have you. I don't know. Purity rings weren't really a thing quite yet in the 90s, but the idea of making that your identity was slowly starting to take form. Yeah, and what's interesting, though, is they kind of strip any of the God part of the narrative Mm. out. So Annette Hargrove is waiting because she believes that one should not experience the act of love until one is in love. And she doesn't think that 
people their age are mature enough for that emotion, is what she's going to later explain to Sebastian is her reasoning for waiting. Which is all well and good. And she has a boyfriend, it's mentioned, named Trevor, and Trevor understands. Uh, And so where this character comes from in the novel is going to be a woman who is in town, because we also do learn that Annette is no longer in Kansas City, Kansas. She is the new headmaster's daughter, and she is staying, coincidentally, with Sebastian's aunt for the summer before school starts. So he's got some insider access to this uncharted body. Where this character comes from in the novel is a woman who is married. She is a high society woman who is very, very pious, very religious, and Mm. she is married. And she is staying with Valmont's aunt of sorts or somebody in his family. That's really convenient. Yeah. Thank God. Because her husband is away on some sort of business, and Mm. so she's kind of like staying back. And... Valmont initially is really pissed off at her holier-than-thou, like, sexually pious, chaste, married attitude. So she is having sex, but with her husband, right? So Mm -hmm. she's not a virgin. Cecile's our virgin in the narrative. This is a married woman Mm -hmm. who is very pious about being married. And he's like, you know what? Fuck that. I'm going to have you cheat on your husband, and that'll be great. Wow. Okay. So that's, I think, why Trevor is in this narrative as well, is the the boyfriend Trevor is Mm -hmm. because we need that stand-in for the husband. So she already is with someone. Mm -hmm. So that cheating component is also there, even if it's not adultery. The talk about Trevor is also where we get some of the very unfortunate homophobia that's in this movie that comes up a little bit later on. But yeah, they say, "Uh, Trevor, the boyfriend, he says he understands. And I won't go word for word here, but Catherine says, yeah, well, he's a, he's a gay guy, but she uses the F word. Not fuck. Fuck is a beautiful word. Everyone should be saying fuck all the time. It's fantastic. The bad F word. Yeah, see, the thing is, is I did not find this movie that homophobic at the time, and I still don't, really. really? They use some terms, but like the actual feeling of whether or not gayness is okay in the narrative like Mm. it it seems to be totally chill Mm. and especially so being gay in the 90s like (laughs) there wasn't that much representation of gay people and so it was actually really exciting in the 90s to all of a sudden not trevor because trevor's not in this movie but there are gay characters and they have some sex Mm. and it was pretty chill and exciting at the time and yeah i still kind of fondly remember that they of course have the lesbian kiss that was blown out of proportion by the press (laughs) and like straight people everywhere but still like it was a chick on chick kiss in the park that was Mm -hmm. naturalized so yeah i have fond associations with this film and yeah the movie has homophobia in it but the movie itself is not homophobic that's fair so yeah i don't have a problem with this movie i suppose if you look at it through the way of the plot if you're going to remake this movie Really, the plot wouldn't need to be changed all that much. It really just is the terminology that was so much more common in the 1990s that you would not want to do nowadays at all. Yeah. So, yeah, I, like I said, I, I don't hold that against this movie. It's like shocking to hear it the first time because you're like, oh, yeah, that's right, 90s. <laughs> but like they're not necessarily using it in an aggressively poor way because... The contextualization of, yeah, Trevor's probably gay because he's cool with, like, his girlfriend not fucking him. That's probably a legit observation. It's just the language that's bad. But it's not saying it's a bad thing that Mm. he is. It's just that that's probably why he doesn't want to have sex with her. So it's it's Mm. all very neutralized. So, yeah, I don't don't have a problem with this movie. But that doesn't mean other people may or may not have it. Mm. Because I don't speak for all queer kids. But I'm I'm chill. Okay. (laughs) Although the fun thing, though, is, like, this particular 
buildup we have of our two main characters, particularly Sebastian, who this narrative is mostly focused on in this movie. And I found an article that had the following quote that amused me, which was, all right, so fewer than 12 minutes into Cruel Intentions, the 1990 film that took an era of teen movies to another level and, in effect, ended the era altogether, Sebastian Velmont has committed a cybercrime and an act of sexual assault and has flirted with another felony, and he is, without question, the hero of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, preach! Uh, yeah, that's, that's fair. And we are going to continue with Sebastian and Catherine, because now we have the situation where Catherine, she wants Sebastian to do one thing. Sebastian, he wants to do the other thing. And this creates the bet. Yeah. She's like, yeah, this is even out of your league, this virginal chick. He's like, you want to bet on it? She's like, okay, fine, sure. And the bet will be as follows. If Catherine wins and Sebastian can't get his dick into a Nat Hardgrove then that sweet little car of his is hers. And if he does win, she'll give him something he's been dreaming about ever since their parents got married. It's like, be more specific. In English, I'll fuck your brains out. Um, He thinks about it, right? He's kind of turned on because he's a teenage boy. (laughs) And he's like, well, what makes you even think I would go for that bet, right? That's a 1956 Jaguar Roadster. You're like, well, Thanks for explicitly stating that. I I appreciate that you know the make and model of your car. She climbs back on her bed for a second, strikes up a pose, and that's when she delivers the line, I'll let you put it anywhere. And that makes him pause and turn back around. And he's like, you've got yourself a deal. <laughs> so. So, a few things here. One, this movie is telling us that Sue Sebastian, anal sex, objectively better than his 1956 Roadster. Fine. But you can't make me believe that these two have not fucked already. They fuck. See, I believe that they haven't fucked already because... London, London, have you not seen a single adult film in the past five years? Step-siblings can't do the laundry without fucking, okay? (laughs) That's why Sebastian feels like he's entitled, I guess, in some way. But... No, I totally get that they have not fucked yet because Catherine, she is a manipulative dominant sadist and it is way more fun and sexually satisfying to fuck with him. And if she had physically fucked with him, then that takes away that withholding power. And so she is coming at this from the psychology of I'm the one thing you can't have and it kills you. And that delights me and gets me off. And it's it makes sense for the character. Like, I have no problem with that. And yet, in the novel that this is based on, Valmont and Mertoy, they have been fucking before. They're ex-lovers, and they're spectacular. And I have pulled one of my favorite snippets from the letters of the Visconde de Valmont to Mertoy. It is letter four. Would you like to read it? I will have a go at this. Letter four from the Visconde de Valmont to the Merchaness. Sure. De Mertois. Did I get that? Mertois. De Mertois. Whatever. Close enough. Your orders are enchanting, and your manner of giving them still more delightful. You would even make one in love with despotism. It is not the first time you know that I regret I am no longer your slave. And yet, monster as you style me, I recall with rapture the time when you honored me with softer names. I had often even wished again to deserve them, 
and to terminate by giving along with you an example of constancy to the world. But matters of greater moment call us forth. Conquest is our destiny, and we must follow it. We may perhaps meet again at the end of our career, or permit me to say, without putting you out of temper, my beautiful Marchioness. You follow me with a pretty equal pace, and since, for the happiness of the world, we have separated to preach the faith, I am inclined to think that in this mission of love you have made more proselytes than I. I am well convinced of your zeal and fervor, and if the God of love judged us according to our works, you would be the patron saint of some great city, whilst your friend would be at a most a common village saint. This language no doubt will surprise you, but you must know that these eight days I hear and speak of no other, and to make myself perfect in it, I am obliged to disobey you. Okay, so basically why this is the best opening paragraph is <laughs> we get this idea that Valmont's super in to Mertoy, where he's like, I regret that I'm no longer your slave, and I miss those times when you honored me with softer names. And you are, and in fact, the god of love, if there ever was one. And I would be with you, only we both have work to do, which is to seduce and destroy <laughs> as many possible people. Man, I would as love to get it on with you, but I'm just so busy fucking these other women, goddamn. Yeah, but matters of greater moment call us forth. Conquest is our destiny, and we must follow it. We may perhaps meet again at the end of our career. So there's this idea that they are on a journey of their own, and they are each other's prize at the end. And so the, this starts out weirdly as this twisted love story, and they are in. That's kind of beautiful in, a, in right? a, its own way. Yeah, they're my OTP. They're super compatible. They know what's up. They both have the same hobbies, same interests, you know, it works. And so this sets up a little bit of the psyche that they're both working with. And I think Catherine's character in the 1999 adaption does actually come across to me as very much in love with Sebastian in her own way. Mm. This is the person that she does care for and does think that that's reciprocated by Sebastian in return, that she sees the two of them as above everyone else and kind of endgame in her mind, which will make the slow dissolve of that union extra tragic and exquisitely painful. But yeah, he goes to meet Annette Hardgrove. Who's staying with his aunt. Yeah, start up this bet. And he does so well. Annette is out in the country, so he goes out to the Hamptons. The director mentioned that they went to Long Island, so... This area, I actually did spend a lot of time looking this up. The outdoors they're on here, where Annette and Aunt Helen, they ride horses up to this house. This is a place called the Old Westbury Gardens, also known as the Phipps Estate. We wanted to look it up because in the commentary they mentioned that scenes from 8mm... Joel Schumacher's film with Nicolas Cage were also filmed here. And in fact, one establishing shot in that movie is this house in uh, Long Island. But it's a very old house. It was owned by steel magnates way back in the day. And nowadays it's often used for weddings and sometimes to film places on. But any of the exteriors we see, yeah, are on that location on Long Island. Though I don't really know that the movie says where in the movie universe this is meant to be. Yeah, so this is the mansion that the little old lady... Mrs. Christian in 8mm summons Nick Cage to give him the movie. And that is also a 1999 film. And I like to think mm -hmm. that 
diegetically, <laughs> canonically, it's this, the same, yeah, it's the same house. <laughs> this old woman, she lives there, and she's maybe Aunt Helen's like mother, so she's like the uh. great great grandmother. So, meanwhile, <laughs> so, while they're meeting out on the lawn right now, their great grandmother is in the house meeting with Nick Cage to send him on some sort of snuff film journey, because it all kind of yeah is that same thematic sexual abuse power dynamic rich people hey, theme, so. welcome to Anne helen's place oh yeah can we go watch a movie uh the movie room's being taken up by this private investigator right now i don't yeah. know he's watching some special film uh, don't worry about it so ryan philippi that's another thing is that apparently his last name is pronounced philippi i've always thought it was philippe and then i was watching an interview with him and somebody called him ryan philippe and he's like actually it's pronounced philippi and i was like you probably shouldn't tell people that <laughs> Let him go with Philippe. It's just better, buddy. But whatever. So apparently, Philippe, he is out on the lawn shooting plates in the sky as rich folk do. Loose! And Aunt Helen automatically knows Sebastian must be there to visit because no other motherfucker shoots shit out of the sky. And so she comes up and she's like, Sebastian! And in another favorite little throwaway moment is... Just Sebastian rolling his eyes as he puts his shotgun down, going, oh, fuck me. Aunt Helen! (laughs) (laughs) And so it's these little choices to see, like, the act, the charade that he puts on to be exuberant and boyfully charming, even right before we can see his true face of just like, oh, fuck me, what fresh hell is this? Aunt Helen! (laughs) They meet... Him and Annette Hardgrove, she immediately is seeing through his boyish charms. He's a little pissed about that. He's going way too hard on this, too, because she's getting off the horse. He's, like, holding her hips as she gets off, seemingly to help her get off the horse carefully, but fuck, no. And then as they go back to the house, he immediately grabs her hand to guide her towards the house. Like, dude, she can follow you fine without you having to grab her hand. Maybe turn it down a few notches here. Yeah, it's very childish in a lot of ways where he's introduced to her and he's like, well, well, and then kind of grabs her hand to run towards the house in a skipping fashion. I'm like, this is a strange seduction tactic, but boy's charm seems to be his go-to and he's getting increasingly miffed that he's not immediately told yes. The thing I take away from this film is it's a guy learning that his seduction and his skills of psychological seduction, no, non-existent. You're just good looking and rich. Calm the fuck down, dude. Yeah, that goes pretty far. As we'll see with Cruel Intentions, too. Perfect plot, terrible cast. The fucking prequel. It's a prequel! Yeah, which makes it great. Well, I mean, it has to be, because Bastion's dead. There's nowhere else to go. (laughs) Right now, he's still alive, though. So he's going to follow Annette into the house, and he's going to continue to try to seduce her. Part of this ploy is going to happen at the pool that is allegedly inside the house. This film is shot over a wide variety of locations. The commentary to this thing, half of it is just them saying, okay, now we're in LA, and now we're in New York, and now we're back here in Long Island, oh, now we're off here in the Hamptons. They're like, okay, guys, we get it. You film on different places. It's cool. Yeah, but it was fun to know where these things were shot, so we're going to get a cool pool scene, beautiful pool environment that is apparently at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, I just enjoyed that the room that Annette is staying in is in the house of the guy who wrote Lethal Weapon. Shane Black. (laughs) He's also the writer and director of, well, Iron Man 3, 
but also Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is a favorite film of mine. So I guess he somehow knew the production. He's like, sure, shoot in my yeah, house. Whatevs. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice deluxe looking space. And Sebastian's just going to start blaring a bunch of music, lure her out of her room down into this gorgeous, great Gatsby looking pool with gold railings and turquoise waters and very low light. The lighting of the scene is very, very cool. They talked about how there were just these giant 10 kilowatt bulbs in the water and that that's pretty much almost exclusively the only light source coming into the scene. Mm. So the whole thing is being lit from below, yeah, from yeah. the water, and we get a lot of the shadows from the moving water because of that. It's a very cool, soft light and a feel. And he convinces her to go for a swim in this gorgeous pool as he continues to seduce her. She goes, she gets a bathing suit on. It's a very 90s suit, turquoise so, with like the white trim. I remember the gap piece, yeah. having these and Calvin Klein. I uh, think hers is a Calvin Klein. Okay. There's a weird period of time from about like 96 to 2003 that almost all outfits, if they came from a particular like pool of designers, I can tell you where that came from because that was my golden era of going to the mall a lot and looking at fashion magazines a lot. And this is a, a Calvin Klein signature style here in this bathing suit that was later ripped off by The Gap and sold. But The Gap never came in this color yeah, combination. We all have our useless skills, London. Yeah. I just wish you had some useful ones to go along with them. Oh, my God. The Friends episodes from... There's a couple of seasons of Friends <laughs> where I can tell you every single wardrobe choice where it came from. Totally useless life skill, but it's all in there. It's all locked in. She gets into the pool. He tries a seduction technique of when she comes back into the area being naked. He shows her his bare ass and then blames it on her where he turns like, around like hanging dog. you, dude. All like, could you uh, turn around so I can finish putting on my suit? I'm so sorry. This is so embarrassing. And I'm like, no, no, no it's not. No, no. He, he just wanted to show you his dick just so you knew what you were working with or what he was working with or whatever. Then he jumps in the pool real quick. He did not have time to put on a bathing suit. He's totally <laughs> naked in there. Meanwhile, it was fun that the director was able to point out that there's like clearly a mark through the water <laughs> on the bottom. Where Which, uh, yeah, I, I never would have noticed that myself. And you can we're used to seeing patterns underwater and tile pools. That's fine. But it is a very distinct black uppercase T that's under there. Like, yeah, that's a mark. That's typically, yeah, when you're telling actors, you go and you stand here, you lay down one tape to show them, okay, this is the direction you're facing, then another tape to say, put your feet here. Yeah, and it, I had never noticed it before, but the second the director pointed out, I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, you can't there unsee that. Another thing that I hadn't seen until the director pointed it out was that apparently the water was freezing because they heat it during the day and then it cooled down at night and although reese witherspoon is holding her own ryan Philippi is just shivering in this water which i didn't really notice but maybe i wasn't paying attention to that very closely like i said i didn't notice it until the director pointed it out uh, and then i enough. noticed oh yeah he's totally shivering so <laughs> it's uh yeah it's a thing also fun to note that these two at the time brian Philippi and reese witherspoon were dating in real life they did not meet on the show, as I had just assumed. They had actually apparently been already dating for a year before oh. the filming of this movie. They met at a birthday party or something. Mm -hmm. And when they were trying to cast Annette Hargrove's role, they read a lot of women for it, including Katie Holmes and somebody else that was big at the time who didn't end up taking it. And so they were like, so Ryan, what about your girlfriend? <laughs> Can we get your girlfriend to come do it? 
and they went out to dinner with her and she's like this character needs some work and so they kind of let her have a little input in rewriting the character but yeah he actually brought her on the project that way so very nice it's possibly another reason why like there's really no chemistry between these two characters again joey tribbiani told us if your actors are not fucking there's chemistry if they are fucking no chemistry um yeah it's but it's a little lackluster. I do not believe their love story, but apparently... I did believe it in real life. They got married. They had some kids. They're no longer together, but they were married for quite some time. Then we have a side plan. So he's going to work on seducing Annette, but she reveals that she already sees through his bullshit because she's been forewarned about him. Yeah. Yeah, she's gotten some letters. And that's another really great thing that they maintain from the novel, this idea of letter writing. Mm -hmm. Cell phones not as popular at the time would have been among like the upper class, but texting not as much yet really at all. So we still have the right precipice of time where writing letters is just believable enough, but it also has this old world heightened melodrama thing of like Mm -hmm. the letter writing. So she's gotten letters. Somebody's been warning her about him. And so he needs to know who and how he figures this out or thinks he figures it out is he goes to his friend gay joshua jackson (laughs) to just bitch about it we don't this guy probably has a name but it's gay joshua jackson yeah he was on dawson's creek right yeah he was Uh, on dawson's creek he needed to be in this so much more (laughs) delighted by this character (laughs) yeah he's just like in the two scenes i think the director said they had had him for three days to film this stuff i don't know something like that yeah he was on for a very short time he bleached out his hair totally blonde white what i did like learning from the commentary is it was josh jackson's idea to dress as much like a preppy right-wing conservative republican as possible (laughs) so basically anybody's son could be a drug dealing homosexual wow (laughs) and like you know i respect because he is true though (laughs) yeah he is dressed like some sort of cape cod you expect like a cardigan tied around or something like that a polo shirt some khakis yeah i don't know about that that's what he has on the scene but yeah you could easily see him as that type yeah vineyard vines made it he will wear it (laughs) but he's super preppy but he's got the bleached hair cumble mentioned that he was excited to think that it was going to be fun and weird and shocking for people to see Josh Jackson all blonde, that he took the one of the main guys from Dawson's Creek and had him bleach his hair, but then he ended up filming Urban Legends with the bleach, which came out first, and uh, so people had uh, already seen it, so it took that away a little bit. Damn it, Urban Legends! But gay Josh Jackson, he mentions that... It could possibly be Greg, because he's like, who do we know that's from Kansas City or knows anybody in Kansas City? He's like, Greg O'Connell is from Kansas City. He's like, what, the quarterback of the high school football team? He's like, yeah. And Sebastian realizes, yeah, he probably has it out for me because I fingered his girlfriend at homecoming last year. Gay Josh Jackson's like, yeah, I don't think he minded so much about that. Let's just say that Greg likes to tackle the tight ends on and off the field. And Sebastian's like, oh, shit, really? Like, what can we do with this information? Josh is like, yeah, well, we hook up sometimes. Actually, he's back in town. And so we have a little pillow kissing session scheduled for tonight. And Sebastian's like, good for you. Right. So another kind of moment of like non-homophobia. Right. Sebastian's totally chill with this. And we totally have this guy who's openly talking about how he's fucking the quarterback. And I was like, yeah. 
We also have the director who mentioned that it was important to him to have this idea that Sebastian mostly saw Greg as fair game to try to fuck with and blackmail. One, because he thought he was fucking with and blackmailing him. Mm. And two, because in his twisted ideology, the one thing he doesn't have respect for are people who are like hypocrited about what they're doing. So he's like, you uh-huh. fuck whoever you want, just like be open about it kind of thing. Sure. I mean, there's zero repercussions for being open about that sort of thing in the late 90s. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's exactly the same as Sebastian being open about his desire to have sex with women. You know, it's just, yeah, my point is it's, it's not. It's not. It's not an ideal. I. It's not a great ideology, but I see where the director is coming from. There. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a good ideology for Sebastian as a libertine, right? Mm-hmm. Who doesn't understand That's the concept yes. of sexual ramification because right? <laughs> he doesn't seem to understand the ramifications for Catherine being closeted and conservative about her sexual exploits as well right, right. she has to pretend to be the marsha fucking brady of the upper east side mm-hmm. because that allowance of women being sexually satisfied is not given or granted to them in the way that he can just go fuck everything that moves so it does make sense for sebastian's character but they set up this little blackmail thing to happen where at the stroke of midnight. As he strokes a very phallic bong on gay Joshua Jackson's desk. And we're really meant to dislike this Greg guy from the start because I had to find this quote of his. We cut to Greg talking to his bros. And he says, so I pull up my dick and I shove it right in your face. And I'm like, the hell is this? Grandma with a birthday present? Suck so it, you dumb, dumb bitch. bitch. The Gregster. The Gregster, yeah. That is one of my most quoted moments of all time. I don't know. It's like one of those quotes that just got stuck in my head. And ever since the 1990s, I say that to people all the time. Like, what is this? Grim with a birthday present? Suck it, you dumb bitch. (laughs) I say that shit constantly. So not usually like in time period appropriate times, more just like out of nowhere. It just gets stuck in my head and I have to verbalize it. So the stroke of midnight plan goes down and... Sebastian enters, he catches them in media race, going at it. Eric Mabius, who is playing the Gregster, tries to deny it. Suddenly, Gay Joshua Jackson's like, you know what? Actually, Greg's pretty dumb, probably doesn't even know how to write a letter. What was I thinking? <laughs> what am I going to do? Uh, you know, Gay Joshua Jackson, I, I, think you, I think you just wanted to have sex with this guy. Well, I mean, he was going to have sex with them anyway, is mm. the thing, right? So part of the question for a lot of people is, why would gay Joshua Jackson be complicit in setting up this blackmail scheme? Ah. And mm. at first, actually, when I saw this in the 90s, too, I had that same response of, like, why is he turning on you know, the guy he's hooking up with? You and betrayed one of his own? the Gregster! The Gregster! And... The more time went on and I started to understand, because I was very young when this movie came out, and Mm -hmm. the more I started to understand kind of like the politics of not like the overall queer community, but a lot of my like fellow LGBTQ friends and Mm. their own stories and journeys through being open and out in like the 80s or 90s or early 2000s is that also we've got to remember gay Joshua Jackson, also a high school based character here. And it, I'm not saying that it's right that he did this, but I also am saying that I kind of have an understanding for some of the bitterness a little bit that comes with 
being one of the only few out kids in the 90s Mm. in your high school and then being the football player's dirty little secret. And this football player is using him constantly, calling him for hookups, but then probably also making homophobic slurs at him Mm. in the hallways or whatever. And that this is kind of gay Joshua Jackson's own little using sex and manipulation as a vengeance tool here Mm -hmm. to say that like, now somebody else knows, right? Now he's been seen with Greg. And Mm. so he's not in that completely alone. And there's a little bit of feeling of triumph that comes along with it. Once again, not saying it's not a dick thing to do, but I have said that I understand the motivation there from Mm. this own complex character that probably has a lot of feelings from being the one that has to take all of the brunt of the homophobia of the 90s when this other dude just has to come in and out and suck dick when he wants and still gets to be the high school quarterback. Mm -hmm. And so what comes out of this then is that Sebastian is like, okay, I know what you can do for me. Since you know Annette Hargrove, I want you to go and tell her all this great stuff about me, how I'm such an (laughs) upstanding guy who doesn't sleep around or use sex as a manipulation tactic or use other people's sex lives as blackmail. So go do that for me, okay? He's like, fine, okay, whatever, I'll go do it. Side note, uh, Cumble wanted Eric Mabius specifically for this role because he had seen him in Welcome to the Dollhouse and was obsessed with Welcome to the Dollhouse, which had a huge impact on Cruel Intentions as well, because it was the first time Cumble realized just how mean high schoolers could be in film. Oh, yeah. So he's like, yeah, we should do this, <laughs> but dangerous liaisons. So yeah, Eric Mabius bringing it. Now, that all goes down. Things are going down. Speaking of kind of going down, we're going to have a scene with Catherine and Sebastian again. Yeah. Sebastian comes home. Catherine's like, you fucker yet? It's like, I'm working on it, Work. bitch. God damn it. Give me f- another day. And in a nice little twisted, semi-incestuous scene, she gets on his lap. There's this extending grinding sequence where she's talking to him. She's playing with his mind. He seems really into it. And since he hasn't succeeded yet, she gets up before he can achieve any sort of satisfaction and tells him, down, boy. This is... Hot business happening here. It is, and a fundamental foundational moment for a lot of preteen sexual psyches in the 90s (laughs) to blossom out of. It's probably one of the reasons we now have so much step-sibling porn (laughs) all these years later when people grew up and were in positions to make their own porn, and they're like, let's go with the step-sibling thing. (laughs) Meanwhile, Cecile's story. Oh, Cecile. Oh, precious... Precious Cecile. Okay, what's Cecile doing? Okay, because, yeah, Cecile is still in this movie. She's been in this movie. We're doing this a little bit out of order. Cecile, she likes her music instructor, Ronald. That that seems like a nice guy. Who's played by Sean Patrick Thomas, also from, what is the movie he plays with Julia Stiles? Oh, Save the Last Dance. Yeah, Save the Last Mm -hmm. Dance, around this same time, maybe a little bit later. But he is showing up to teach her music lessons. She is super dumb the entire time. This apartment that they have cello lessons in is more of a nouveau riche style, so it's a lot more bare than the Valmont's Mertoy estate. Mm. But production note here is that they just had to blow out the windows because it was filmed in L.A., but it's supposed to be New York. So they just had to blow out the windows so you can't see outside of them and then just put really cool filters over the light to make it seem like it's in New York. And by cool filters, we mean bluish filters because that is 
how you film New York. New York is blue, LA is orange. So if you're filming in New York and it's supposed to be LA, you make it orange. You're filming in LA and it's supposed to be New York, make it blue. That's that's how you do it. Yeah, that's the rules. <laughs> Catherine has been trying to instruct her on the sexual awakening ways. She will take her to a park and have the infamous kiss in Central Park scene with her where Selma Blair, <laughs> Cecile, be like, well, I've never even kissed a boy before. She's like, well, you got to practice on your girlfriends. Like, yeah. how do you think girls learn? I love that she asked her that, like, as the most matter-of-fact things. You mean you haven't practiced on any of your girlfriends before? No. Like, was this a normal thing? I was not a teenage girl at any point in my life, so I obviously don't know, but... I wasn't friends with any straight girls. I was going to say, none of my friends were straight. I so... think I had one token straight friend, and then everybody else was... Yeah, of course, kissing other girls or other boys. And so, yeah, I don't know what straight girls do at sleepovers, but I'm intrigued now. <laughs> straight <laughs> girls, let us know. Did you practice kissing on your friends? Inquiring minds want to know. But Catherine here and Cecile, they're, they practice kissing in the park. Catherine is Boy. rocking this big black sun hat and these big black sunglasses, and she's also dressed in all black. It does not look like... The outfit to be out in the middle of the daylight for. They're in the shade. It's, it's fine. great. Think back. How overblown was this kiss back in the day, though? Oh, it was so overblown. It was ridiculous. I mean, first of all, it's in all of the promos for this movie. Any trailer, any TV spot has this kiss in it. And goddamn, people could not stop talking about this kiss. Because it was so taboo, right? To have women kissing with tongue that close up. This is also pre-internet porn of sorts. And so a lot of young people who wanted to see two girls kiss couldn't just look that shit up on the internet. So this was some prime material. Mm. This was still that 90s erotic thriller situation where you could make a lot of money off of having a little bit of softcore stuff because if you didn't have access to porn rentals, then this is what you had to work with, I suppose. Yeah, so she teaches her how to kiss and tries to encourage this relationship that's blossoming between Cecile and Ronald. But Ronald, he's not fucking her fast enough. And so Catherine's like, okay, we need to develop a new plan. One of the plans is going to be to make Ronald seem forbidden to Cecile, and that's going to make her want him more. And so Catherine tells on Ronald to Mrs. Codwell. And Mrs. Codwell, being the racist that she is, immediately goes to the, this is not okay because it is an interracial relationship. Even Catherine seems super surprised by this being where Mrs. Codwell goes because she was like, she's like, I know, like, Cecile's so young and Ronald's so, and then Mrs. Codwell is going to go, black and then somebody who's bringing her coffee right at that moment (laughs) that looks shocked as well at her. She's like, I mean, brown sugar, no sugar. Catherine's like, okay, so this is actually going to be a lot easier than anticipated. <laughs> like, oh, I thought you were, had a class issue with the guy. Turns out you're a fucking racist. Well, all right. Yeah. Way easier. And uh, in the novel, it is not a racial issue. She does have a music teacher that she falls for, and it is a class issue yeah. in the book because it's horrifying that she mm. would like some sort of underclass gruffian of the musical variety. But the racial relationship seems like it was a little bit more contemporary to the 90s Definitely. than like the fact that she was into somebody whose profession was music. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a 90s contemporary upgrade. 
And it also allows for Ronald to pick up on the racism when the mother goes and finds the love letters that Ronald has written to Cecile. Because once again, it's all about the letters. Gotta get those letters yeah, in, yeah. Nice little nod to the novel. Imagine the boring remake that just has a bunch of emails or texts in it nowadays. That could be fun. And she accuses Ronald of, I got you off of the streets, and this is how you repay me? And he's like, whoa, bitch. He's like, the streets? I live on 59th and Park. (laughs) Which, two notes on this. Okay. There's no official, absolute official dividing boundary of the Upper East Side, but generally it starts on 59th Street. So, okay, so he's he's in the same neighborhood as them. Yeah, so being on 59th and Park, he is technically also an Upper East Sider. Maybe on the edge, maybe thematically on the edge of the Upper East Side. Okay, but right. he is he's very well off. But what actually is at the corner of 59th and Park that is a residential building mm. is the Trump Park Avenue LLC. What? So I think he lives in the Trump Park Ave building. Oh, no. So, yeah. Oh, I mean, that should make Mrs. Caldwell like him even more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I guess at the time, you know, he's just a rich real estate developer. So, like, I mean, there's a lot of buildings in Manhattan that are under the Trump real estate thing. But, yeah, I just found that randomly amusing. I was like, does that put him in the Trump Park Ave buildings, that's what's on the corner of 59th and Park that's residential. So He gets in that elevator, he rides it all the way down, and there Catherine and Sebastian are on the bottom of the elevator when it opens, Just standing there like baller little assholes. Smiling devils at him. <laughs> wearing their sunglasses. They give him a fake love letter from Cecile that confesses her love that Catherine herself wrote. They tell him that they're going to help him get Cecile. And it's such an amazing, weird little scene because they're sitting together. Catherine's kind of like perched on Sebastian's kind of armrest knee area. They're both smiling like they're these chipper Mm. pod people from the 1950s. They're cozy as hell. Like Sebastian has his arm around Catherine's waist. Yeah. And he's like, why are you guys helping me? And they're like, oh, just because we want to, right? We believe in the power of love or whatever. He bounces thinking that this is possibly something that he can get in on or he has help with. We also get a little bit of information that Catherine has frustrations in her life. Yeah, because she really wants Sebastian to just get on board with stuff. Oh, I guess did we... Did we miss something? So earlier... Back at the stroke of midnight plan, oh, okay, we do have yeah, um, Greg being blackmailed into saying nice things and to figure out who it was that was actually saying bad things about mm. him to Annette Hargrove. Yeah. And she reveals on this beach walking scene with him that it is Cecile's mother oh. that has been bad mouthing him to Annette. Oh, fuck, we gotta do something about that. Yeah, and so Sebastian realizes, okay, well, now that this is about me, <laughs> I'm on board with this fucking Cecile plan. Oh, fucking Cecile. Yeah. Because kind of like how when his therapist was overcharging him, he's like, okay, well, I'm going to get vengeance on you by fucking your daughter. This is the same situation. He's like, you've been badmouthing me. I'm going to get back at you by fucking your daughter. So, yeah, we get to Dupecon scene. Yeah. Uh, this is so, so... Un- this is like what I said earlier. The worst part about this movie is we have a character committing sexual assault. This movie tries really hard to tell me he's not doing that. Like, no, we have a young child here. I know that Selma Blair was in her mid-20s when they were filming this. 
this character, Cecile, is I think meant to be, what, 15, 16, maybe 14 years old, already seems to have some sort of developmental issue attached to that, so possibly the mind of a 10-year-old. And on top of that, she asks, wow, this iced tea you're giving me tastes really weird. Sebastian says, yeah, it's, it's from Long Island. So he's drugging her, basically, with a Long Island iced tea, which, depending on how you make a Long Island, it's a very deceptively strong drink. It can taste like it doesn't have much alcohol in it, but if you mix it the right way, it can knock you flat on your ass. Yeah, he has his camera out. He's taking pictures and of her. he's taking pictures. He's like, oh, it's just too bad you can't be sexy. She's affronted by that. She's like, I can be sexy. Okay, show me sexy. <laughs> <laughs> so she starts posing. He's like, yeah, that that's pretty sexy. You know what would be super duper sexy? If we took off all our clothes. At some point, he also gets her to agree to a kiss. He wants to kiss her. That's all he wants to do sure. is just give her a kiss. And she's like, just one kiss? And he's like, yeah. She's like, okay, fine. And then he starts to unlace her pajama pants. And she's like, what are you doing? I thought you just wanted to kiss me. He's like, yeah, but I don't want to kiss you there. I want to kiss you, you know, kind of just down, down there. Down then that business down there. The cunnilingus of dubious consent <laughs> ensues. I'm totally fine with this and on board with it because I have signed up for Sebastian and Catherine as our uber villainous heroes. They're going to do some morally bankrupt shit in the process, but they're doing it well, so I'm on board. It eases you into the action as best that it can, and I think some of it really credit to Selma Blair because she sells it because he goes down out of frame and work just close on her face. She says, whoa, that, that kind of tickles, and ends the scene by seeming to spasm out of frame because something good just happened. I don't know. Yeah, this film, I disagree that it's trying to make us seem like nothing ethically violating is happening. Like, pretty much everything that Sebastian's character does is purposefully ethically sketchy, right? That's his character. He's fucking over his therapist by posting non-com pictures of the daughter on the internet. He is trying to lie and con his way into Annette's bed. He's blackmailing Greg. Like, none of these are great actions. (laughs) Like, Cecile is just on a list of many things that this character just does because he's entitled to do so. And it's kind of fun to watch him do it. Then Cecile, Catherine is also right on board with this morally scrupulous activity because Cecile will come right to Catherine the next day and tell her about something that happened with her stepbrother. And Catherine concludes for her that you had your first orgasm because Cecile will say that what happened is that Sebastian started to go down on her and create the alphabet with his tongue and whatever. And then there was like the sensation that built. And then it was like an explosion, but a good one. Catherine tells her, Cecile, you've just had your first orgasm. Now that you've had one, it would be stupid to stop. (laughs) So my advice is to sleep with as many people as possible. Just need to be cranking out those orgasms, like one after the other. You need to just sleep with everyone that you can. Yeah, and Catherine is Cecile's mentor. Cecile's like, okay, I'll take your word for it. So she continues to have sex with Sebastian. In one scene, they'll have just gotten done with their sexual endeavors, and she's just eating all of these cherries out of this bowl of oh. like silver bowl of Barciano cherries that are on the bed beside her. Some cherries are in this scene. Subtle, not subtle. Do any of them pop? But it's also amazingly decadent because like what asshole? 
somebody had to pour all of those cherries out of the jar into the silver platter and like bring them up to the bed and those are just so sickly sweet and she's just eating so many of them whatever it's a mood and it's cool she's getting hers (laughs) and she is Showing a little bit more cognitive reasoning uh, It's skills. a bit better here. It's a little bit better. I'm assuming that she hasn't been drinking prior to all of this. And she does seem to come off almost as a little bitchy yeah. in the scene towards him. Because Sebastian wants to write in his journal. And she wants to flirt and talk or whatever. And like, I mean, honestly, Sebastian, you have a woman in your bed. Is now really the time to say, no, no, we need to stop talking so I can write in this book. like. Dude, fucking be present in the moment. No, he doesn't give a fuck about her. And she picks up on that, too. And she's like, why? Because you want to write about Annette? You love her, don't you? Well, that's okay, because I don't love you either. I love Ronald. (laughs) And then (laughs) she falls off the bed because she's a hot mess. I mean, if it's a mutual, mutual non-loving situation, then uh, okay, fine. Yeah, so she seems to get on board. So, you know, like, whatever. Meanwhile, Sebastian has been hitting on Annette this whole time. They allegedly develop their blossoming love story. She hasn't volunteered in an old folks' home. She makes mediocre, silly faces at him in the car oh, to yeah, get him that's... to lighten up. And Sebastian and Catherine continue to have the only chemistry in this movie that matters. <laughs> Annette, at some point, decides that she's going to have to leave and go stay with some friends in the city because... She's starting to develop some feels for Sebastian, and she doesn't trust herself with him. And Sebastian retaliates by leaving first because he can't take her games anymore. She makes him feel inadequate. She's like, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. So it's this whole little pouty manipulation game, which is not the sexiest form of manipulation game, but it's working. You know what I just realized this kind of reminds me of, and this is not at all a compliment, the romance between Padme and Anakin in Attack of the Clones. It's that vibe, where it really doesn't make sense that these two should be into each other. And yet, here we are presented with this. Like, you expect Sebastian at some point to just go, I wish I could wish away my feelings. Some of that ridiculous dialogue that we had in Attack of the Clones. So, yeah, I just it just now occurred to me. Maybe it was because Ryan Philippe and Hayden Christensen kind of look alike, and they were both put out of work when Justin Timberlake began acting. So, At this point, he's still not aware that he's actually into her at all. He's still playing the game. And he accuses her, well, you're a hypocrite, and I don't associate with hypocrites. She's like, how am I a hypocrite? He's like, all you do is preach about waiting for love, and it's right here in front of you, and you won't do anything about it. Uh... And she's like, you know what? You're right. And maybe I'm a hypocrite. So she sits down on the bed and starts to unbutton her silk pajamas, her pastel silk pajamas. It's like, okay, fine, let's do this. And Sebastian, he chokes. He can't do it. He sees her waiting there on the bed and he just leaves. And then he goes and he looks at himself in a mirror because, you know, mirrors. And it's like, get it together, you pussy. Because he realizes, like, wait, I choked. I wasn't able to go through with it. Why wasn't I able to go through with it? And after some reflection, he realizes, because he kind of started to respect the fact that she didn't want to fuck somebody who wasn't into her. And he knew he was doing it for, like, the wrong reasons or whatever. So he's having, like, a little, like, crisis of moral consciousness setting in for, like, a hot second. Because he might be developing feelings. In the novel, the feelings that he has for... 
the married chick are kind of developed a little bit sooner in a fabricated way. So one mm. of his first letters that he writes to Catherine, or her name's not really Catherine in the novel, but like the Marquis de Matoya or whatever, what a, yeah. is this idea that like he feels like he's in love with this chick because like he can't have her and that pisses him off so he needs to make that go away by fucking her so it's kind of like that i can't have it so i really want it and the longer that goes on the more that feeling grows because like it's just this denial this game of denial okay all right so it's kind of a falsified love it's a hyper neurochemical state that people particularly high schoolers often mistake as defining as love, right? It's that kind of like heightened form of prolonged attraction and yearning. And 1700 France didn't really have a whole lot of neurochemistry courses and ways of talking (laughs) about things and neither do high schoolers. And so that's like the one reason that I will allow this love story between Annette and Sebastian to be even remotely plausible because I don't feel it. I don't feel them developing into mm-hmm. anything. I don't feel see them as compatible or working out long term. But they are high schoolers. And high schoolers have a lot of emotions for right. their little bodies. And they become convinced quite quickly that they are in love. This is basically the premise of Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk about that some other time. Oh, but, sure. Uh, yeah, he's starting to develop like some high school you know, crush feelings for this chick. And so he goes after her. He realizes, mm-hmm. oh, shit, like, I, I made a mistake. And yet she's already left to get on a train. So he has to meet and intercept her at the train station. And he's apparently all in love now. So they cut to some sex. So they are going to have sex because they're in love. And this fulfills her requirement. And he didn't have requirements for fucking. So it all works out. And it's that good vanilla missionary men on top. Just kind of moving sex. It's like, oh, it's yeah. real sweaty. It's super sweaty. It's incredibly warm lit. The Counting Crows <laughs> colorblind song is just playing <laughs> everywhere in the background. And the thing that always cracked me up is that we see them meet at the train station, cut to sex. And I'm like, wait, are they just fucking in like a closet at the train station? Or like, what's happening here? Like, where is the sex taking place? Are they fucking on the train? Did he hop on the train with her? Did they go? Back to his, like, did she not get on the train? I think, like, it, they do technically fuck at his place because a later cut after the sex is him leaving his place. So I guess maybe they, we cut over them going back to his house. Okay. But All right. it's still just hilarious because it's like, meets at the train station, sex. And I'm like, okay, apparently they're fucking in a train station somewhere. Like, what a amazing first time for Annette Hargrove's principles or whatever. Ugh. I mean, I think that sounds like a fun first time, but I'm not in that hard grip. So Catherine is starting to realize that Sebastian seems to be liking this chick, and she is not pleased. She's going to get back at Sebastian by calling up Ronald to fuck him. And hey, you know, what? The, whatever, if he's down for it. Yeah, and he seems totally down for it. Yeah, he seems like someone with a fully functioning mind who would like to have sex of his own volition. She arranges... For 
him to or for Sebastian to overhear her fucking Ronald. <laughs> She's very loud. He comes in, is like, well, well, what do we have here? Finds Ronald, chases Ronald out, kind of not really. I I would have almost assumed that Ronald would have stayed, but he seems to pick up some vibes and he's like, There's some fucked up shit I, in this house and he bounces. I love that line. Yeah, just as he leaves looking at the two of them like, There's fucked up shit going on in this house. <laughs> yeah. And so Catherine nice. and indeed there is, because Catherine tries to kiss Sebastian. He rejects her. Kay's been a Catherine's been rejected again for some sort of withholding virgin, so she gets pissed, right? She's like, I wanna fuck. And he's like, I don't. And she's like, What, you you like her now? And at some point earlier, Catherine's gonna have had this speech. The Marsha fucking Brady of the Upper East Side speech, mm-hmm. which is iconic. Yes. Because she reveals, okay, so it's fine for guys like you, Sebastian, and Court to fuck everything that moves. Yet, when I do it, I get dumped for these innocent twits like Cecile. Mm -hmm. And that she pretty much has to put on this front all the time of being the perfect student, the perfect mentor, and not fully virginally chaste, but not promiscuous. That concludes with, I'm the Marsha fucking Brady of the Upper East Side, and sometimes I want to kill myself. I have so much empathy for Catherine as a character, because I'm like, preach, girl. Like, that is so very, very true. It's the one time in the movie that Catherine really lets you in on what her psyche is, on what she's feeling and thinking. And most of it is just her manipulations, but this is the one time we actually are led to understand her motivations. And it's a very valid thing to be upset by. It's something that I think women still have to deal with, walking the fine line of what society perceives as the correct amount of promiscuity that a woman can have. So, Catherine is an idol, and... (laughs) The point is, Catherine, idol. She is the best. She also, we've been led into her psyche that she does have feelings for Sebastian, as we mentioned at the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. This is, to her, the end game, and so now the one dude that she thought was always going to be on her side as like this co-amazing promiscuous little game-playing sociopath is also rejecting her for another goddamn chaste virgin. It's like, God damn it. You know, I I feel you, girl. A pattern like that has got to be really, really annoying. So she gets pissed and she threatens Sebastian's reputation. Like, what do you think is going to happen come the fall? Like, you're just going to be... The Mr. Annette Hardgrove holding her hand giving campus tours. Like, this is going to destroy both of your reputations. And that threat of his reputation is enough to get him immediately running to Annette and breaking up with her. Yeah, there's the director's commentary was this breakup scene between Annette and Sebastian was really hard for the actors to film because at the time there are these two young 20-something kids mm-hmm. that are still in the honeymoon phase of their own romance and that Ryan Phillippe oh. like threw up on set that day what? and uh, Reese Witherspoon's slap across uh, Sebastian's face was unscripted so they were kind of like getting into the moment but then they were I don't know having problems with having to break up with each other over and over again I was like you guys are actors like pull it together but like that apparently was the note on that scene And he runs back to melodramatically sit in Catherine's room for her to come back and see him (laughs) in his little Napoleonic frock coat and his sunglasses sitting in the corner of, oh shit, we have not talked about her room. Her room is like the most gorgeous interior design of any movie set ever. The blue room. Oh my God, yes. It is the envy of anybody who's ever had a bedroom. (laughs) 
because it is this beautiful French blue, all of these silver trims. It's just deluxe. It's so good. And would later also be used as an inspiration in Gossip Girl with Blair Waldorf's bedroom. They made sure to paint it Catherine's oh, bedroom okay. color as that kind of reference. Nice. But uh, it is gorgeous. He's sitting in the corner of it, being this really melodramatic little creeper. He reveals, okay, you win. I broke up with a nut. Uh, let's toast and fuck. What else can you do, really? Yeah, he's like, what should we toast to, right? And she's like, to my triumph. Ah. Not my choice of toast, but your call to your triumph over mm-hmm. a net. Now we can fuck, right? Yeah, she's like, no, silly rabbit. My huh? triumph isn't over a net. It is over you, dear brother. You were very much in love with her, and just a threat of your reputation made you completely destroy the only thing you ever cared about. So I win. And he gets really angry at this. It is kind of making him look into the dark cave that is his soul, whether he wants to or not. And he's like, oh, well, also, I was a dick, too, because I know you were expecting Ronald and not me, but here's a letter from Ronald, which I haven't read, but probably goes something along the lines of, like, I'm back with Cecile, so not fucking you anymore. So they both took away each other's lovers (laughs) out of spite, which is kind of great and sad all at the same time. And they have this little showdown in this particular scene where he in the scene that remains, realizes that this whole thing is kind of falling apart and he needs to try to go back and get Annette and he leaves and Catherine just says goodbye, Sebastian, to herself in the room. The original scene that was deleted Mm. but can be found and is also included on the DVD and the special features, there's actually a bunch of deleted scenes that are actually extended scenes so Mm -hmm. it's interesting to watch them carve certain things out of certain scenes but it gets pretty dark in this original cut or this original scene before it was all cut up where he actually does hit her so Sebastian does hit her across the face and then almost rapes her and then after he kind of like stops for a second and gets up and kind of helps her up he demands that she fulfill the bet and says, okay, get on the bed so we can fuck. I won, technically. Let's do this. And she's like, yeah, that's not super romantic. You know, <laughs> so I'm not really feeling that right now. Kind of in a replay of earlier when she was like, I want to fuck, you know, and he's like, well, I don't. So now he's like, well, I want to fuck. And she's like, well, I don't. And he's like, yeah, but the bet has been culminated and fulfilled. So if you don't get on the bed, by the time I count to three, this means war. And he counts to two. And she says, three. And then finalizes that with war it is. And that's when he storms out. And then that's when she also says goodbye, Sebastian. So it gets even more intense there. What becomes curious with a lot of the dialogue that is in the scene, this talk of war and the talk of... It's from the book, right? Yeah. No, it's definitely from the play and the 88 movie with Glenn Close and Malkovich. Yeah. So it is... A lot of these lines are taken directly from the novels slash the letters that are in the novels. And... So there's a certain language there that is a little dated, but a little universal at Mm -hmm. the same time. And so that's pretty cool. And then, yeah, the whole war stuff of Sebastian declaring, if you do X, Y, and Z, this means war. And then Catherine being like, war it is, or whatever. Mm So we have that going on in terms of the war that is declared in the culmination, the penultimate moment here. But yeah, he really does hit her and demand some stuff they cut it because they realized that 
it's Sebastian's story and they're trying to kind of keep him our center person. Yeah. And so there's a lot of stuff that's hard to completely empathize with him mm-hmm. on for a lot of people. So they tried to kind of trim down some of these more extreme parts. But it does mean that when Catherine then calls up Ronald to say, like, Sebastian's out of control, like, he hit me and then, you know, left. Yeah, in the final movie, the theatrical version of the film, you think, wow, what a shitty lie for Catherine to tell Ronald about Sebastian. Yeah. But you take this delayed scene into context. Oh, no, that's not a lie. He really hit her and nearly raped her. Wow, Ronald is totally justified in going after Sebastian right now. Yeah, so she calls him in for a little bit of help. And at first, Ronald's like, hey, you know, like, you're not my bitch anymore. You're not my problem. Mm -hmm. And Catherine's like, okay, but it's also about Cecile. And that's when he perks up and he comes over (laughs) and hears her out. And that's off screen, of course. But we get the idea that she tells Ronald about Sebastian raping Cecile. Mm -hmm. And that makes Ronald understandably a little angry that Sebastian is now hitting his ex, almost trying to rape his ex, and then also has sexually manipulated and violated the girl that he loves. And this also is something that happens in the novel. The musician does hear from Catherine or Matoy that Valmont has raped Cecile, which he does much more directly mm-hmm. in a lot of the, the stage adaptation and the Malkovich novel who's played by a young Uma Thurman, by the way, and it's oh, adorable. Yeah. But he goes after Sebastian. In the original novel, this is where Ronald, who's not named Ronald in the novel. It's the like musician, we'll say. Densey or something. Mm-hmm. He challenges Sebastian to a duel. Ah, because, you know. Good old duel. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you do is you challenge him to duels and the Ronald character wins the duel <laughs> is how that kind of ends up. Wow, Sebastian, you are fucking useless. <laughs> yeah, in the movie adaptation, they are going to weekly fist fight in the center divide. <laughs> it really is. I mean, if there's one thing that this movie gets very accurate about high schoolers, showing how they fight, because high schoolers cannot fight for shit and have no method whatsoever. It's just, I'm going to punch you. I'm going to shove you a little bit. Yeah, they scuffle around a little bit. Annette sees them from afar. This is a reshoot that they had to do later because the original ending just had Sebastian getting hit by a car. The reshoots decided that he should get hit by a car saving Annette. So Mm. she shows up to try to pull the two boys apart, falls into the street, takes forever to get back up. And so (laughs) Sebastian has to push her out of the way of running traffic. Also, how does that cab driver not see the woman in broad daylight wearing all white on the road? Maybe he's just not looking at the road specifically. <laughs> Maybe in theory she wasn't on the road as long as it felt like she was on it the road. It just feel like it's like, God damn woman, stand up or something. God. Because technically, I guess it is only a couple seconds. Mm-hmm. So if you're going fast on the highway and some chick just I, like falls yeah, out in but, front of you. But yeah, Sebastian leaps out into the road and pushes her away. But doesn't really bother to get out of the way himself. So, car goes boom on Sebastian, and Sebastian is... He's not long for this world now. Yeah, and I don't... 
fully understand the physics of that because there are a lot of people, not like a huge amount, but there are precedental cases in real life where people have gotten hit themselves pushing other people out of the way from mm-hmm. traffic and cars. So this is apparently a thing. Like, I guess okay. the running force like hits something static and like mm-hmm. you can't quite continue at the same speed or something. So I don't know. Yeah, it clips him and stunt dude named Dusty Meyer takes this hit and he does a really good job just flipping all over this car. Yeah. It's pretty graphic. Mm-hmm. Lands on the ground. Annette and Sebastian are able to lock eyes in his dying moments and exchange their love vows or whatever. <laughs> and that also was initially... So the end initially was just him getting taken out in some capacity. Mm-hmm. The Annette stuff was added later as is the following part of the school assembly oh. with Catherine they felt like they needed some more stuff, some sort of finalizing thing. Mm-hmm. And so what they have happen is that Catherine is there at school to give a school assembly speech on her Eulogy. brother. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, right before he ended up getting in a fight with Ronald, he had gone back to where Annette was staying and gave her a note in his journal to try to explain, I made a mistake, I'm actually totally into you, and Mm -hmm. here's all the shit that's been going down, and the fact that, you know, me sleeping with you is a bet, but now I also kind of like you. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if that's really going to work, bro, but that's fine. It's him saying, like, I am laying myself as bare as possible to you. I've been a thing of lies for all of my life. Like I said, there's the, the line in there where he says, my entire life has been a lie, and I'm thinking, you're 17, dude. You'll get over it. It's okay. But it is him laying himself bare, being as vulnerable as possible to her, because chicks dig vulnerability in a guy. Yeah, he basically, she's all that's the situation. Oh, okay. There was a bet, but I fell for you anyway. Can you forgive me and come back? So she has the journal and apparently has made a bunch of copies of this journal, which she passes out outside of the school (laughs) assembly. And everybody in the school funeral starts leaving to go read this journal, which rude. Yeah, the logistics of it are a little strange because Catherine is giving her eulogy during the assembly slash funeral thing, because that's just what the school does is they have school assemblies. that are also funerals, whatever. And someone runs in with one copy of the thing. And just starts going up to people, sitting down in the pews, says something to them, and they get up and leave. So it seems like someone is running up and going to the first person they can and saying, Hey, I have a thing. Catherine's actually a bitch. What? Catherine's actually a bitch? Well, I need to stand up right away and run outside and see what more you have to say on the issue. And that just kind of builds and goes gossip train for there. But yeah, kind of a dick move on the part of everyone who stands up and leaves in the middle of the speech. Let her give the speech first, and then go find out what a bitch she is. Yeah, but they don't, and it's very dramatic. Cecile is there. She's also helping pass out the journals, so it's some Cecile vengeance. Catherine flips through this book and sees that who she considers the love of her life in his journal has just described her as a deceitful, hateful bitch. And so she's getting this cold wake up call. And once again, I'm feeling for her. Cause like in her mind, this was end game. This was her equal. Mm-hmm. It's like, God damn. Man. I've been betrayed by my bro. No. Yeah. He mentions her little Coke crucifix thing, her <laughs> rosary, which we see her do like snort some cocaine right before she begins the speech. So you consider that she's really high on cocaine during all this. That is an uncomfortable thing to be going through. 
I mean, she's probably used to it. She well, probably needs... This is, like, before you had the easy access of, like, Adderall everywhere. So oh, you had to true. do coke, right? Mm-hmm. And so the headmaster comes out. He sees her little rosary and opens it and just socially shames her by shaking his oh, head at mm. her. And it's like, yeah, you are doing coke. And I was like... Bitch, this is a high school student in the 90s. Of course she's doing coke. Like, what What do you want from her? So it seemed weird to me that everybody was like, for shame. Like, look, all you Upper East Side rich assholes. Don't pretend like she's the only one doing coke, for fuck's sake. Give me a break. A, another thing that happens in this movie, which is a thing that, like, nobody notices until it's pointed out to them by the director in the commentary, is that when Sebastian had been walking around New York... Before he gives Annette the journal, they realized that they needed a little bit more of him reflecting on that because the scene initially is just him walking around Manhattan. And then it cuts to a shot of him laying down on his bed next to the journal. But the bed in the room is from the Long Island house. Uh And it always bothered the director that he's like, okay, we needed more of him reflecting, but we only had this footage of him back at Long Island. So I was always wondering if people are going to call me out for like, how is he walking around Manhattan and then laying down in Long Island? And he's oh. like, but nobody ever called me out. I'm like, yeah, because I never noticed. It was no. another thing like the mark on the ground or what's going to happen here shortly with like the mountains of Manhattan that like oh, you just yeah. kind of let happen. And it's super mm-hmm. fascinating just how much stuff like that this movie just totally gets away with like it's fine yeah well that's just it's your mind is not focusing on the room he's in you're just focusing on him and his emotions and what he's going through if the scene was about a closet that he had to get into or a thing he had left in the room or what have you yeah sure that might throw your attention off but no no one gives a fuck he's on the bed and he's in distress it's like a shot that lasts maybe three seconds. No, no one's going to notice. I think it's just a testament to the consistency of the tone of this movie yeah, that you yeah. can take two totally separate sets that are distinctive from each other. I'm fascinated now that I had never noticed because mm-hmm. once he pointed it out, I was like, oh shit, that is the Long Island yeah, house. Yeah. But it's just there's a consistency throughout this movie that gives it this very perfection feel that you don't question some of the exterior designs because the motion of the story and the emotion that's happening in the scene just all makes a lot of sense. And that's also going to happen here where now that Catherine has been, her reputation's been destroyed and she's crying outside in front of all of her classmates, which is a dick thing to do to this poor (laughs) chick who is just doing some stuff. She's just playing her role. Like she's certainly not the villain over Sebastian by any means, but whatever. Annette suddenly is in the 1956 Jaguar Roadster because she has Sebastian's car and his sunglasses. Why? We don't know. Pretty sure Sebastian doesn't have a will and that the car is probably in his parents' name. Maybe it's a Grand Theft Auto situation. Annette stole the car. Yeah, so Annette has this car and she's got Sebastian's journal on the seat next to her. There are mountains in the background because a lot of this film was actually shot in and around LA because... It just was. Movies do that. Actually, most movies don't. Only like 18% of films are shot in LA anymore, but this is one of them. Mm. And the director referred to this as the mountains of Manhattan, which I thought were hilarious because (laughs) he's like, yeah, they're supposed to be like outside the FDR, but like whatever. We let it happen. I never noticed that prior to that because there's no real wide shot. You do see the deserty ground behind her, but you're really just looking at Reese and her reflecting on Sebastian because it cuts back to her time with Sebastian or something like that, which I know the director said was another addition. Originally, the scene was just 
she drives the car, but they also include these flashbacks, I guess, because Reese's smile looked a little too evil, and it seemed like the, the scene was coming off as if she was just lethal at stealing the car or something like that, and it fucking over Catherine. Yeah. And I was like, I don't care. Either way, she is the uber bitch here because I was like, I do not want you to triumph. You are so boring. I did not believe your love story. I don't like you. And Catherine should have prevailed. I know. And really, at the end of the day, what exactly is being revealed about Catherine here when you get down to it? Yeah, they open up the journal and it's just Sebastian saying Catherine's a bitch or Catherine's evil or something like that. What exactly do we think is being revealed about Catherine? to these students. Yeah, apparently just all of the years of their sex games that they played with other people. So probably things like, yeah, she asked me to like rape Cecile and she asked me probably like, I don't know what they've been up to for like the yeah. years and years that they've been to together playing their little games. But in the novel, it is just all of Matoy's compliance and since she was like the instigator, usually, of asking him to do X, Y, and Z. So just that she's a social, conniving, manipulating sociopath. But these aren't crimes. Like, right. she's not getting arrested. She's mm-hmm. Her reputation as the Marsha fucking Brady of the Upper East Side has been demolished. What happens to her in the book? Okay, so, yeah, the ending of the book is actually even more of a downer than the Holy movie is. Holy shit. <laughs> so, meanwhile, the ending of the novel... We've got the Annette character, whose name is Madame Torvel this whole time, but I haven't been saying it, but you know, whatever. So Madame Torvel, once she's broken up with by Valmont, she realizes that she's cheated on her husband and also does kind of have feelings for him that don't seem to be reciprocated. And she is just overwhelmed with guilt and grief. And so, of course, the only thing that such a weak woman can do is come down with like a fever and die because that's what Hold you know, grief will do is it'll S- give S- you fevers and kill you she dies of a broken heart kind of <laughs> it's not necessarily she dies of like a guilty heart a guilty conscience i guess yeah and this is before okay. Belmont can get back together with her or like try okay. you know so yeah. she just basically he breaks up with her and she's like oh man what have i done and dies okay and as i understand it the cecile character just goes back into the convent or something she doesn't get married to the guy that she was supposed to get married to for whatever reason, and just returns the convent having gotten laid one time in her life. Well, because her reputation has also been ruined. Also, she has not been laid just one time in her life because she consistently has sex with Valmont, kind of like Cecile oh, does okay. with Sebastian in this movie. So she's she's been having a whole lot of sex because, you know, Catherine told her to. So she has a lot of sex with Valmont, and she also gets together with her music teacher, and she okay. falls in love with him, and she's having a bunch of sex with him. And after that, just needs a lot of churching, so goes back to the convent. Well, Doesn't. after that, she's no longer a virgin, and thus a bride of substance and worth for the betrothed uh, situation, because okay. like basically, Matoya's plan pans out, because her ex-lover only wanted to marry Cecile because she was this good virginal wife, which she no longer is. So that deal falls through and she has to go back to the convent dishonored. And then, yeah, we have this duel. Valmont is fatally wounded. And right before he dies, he gives the musician the letters of correspondence between him and Mertoy. Oh, okay. And these 
are the letters then that the musician goes about and publishes. Okay, so, okay, all right. Yeah, he's brokenhearted because Cecile's been taken away from him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he doesn't get to be with the person he likes either. And having been ruined, Mertoy, she absconds in the night after there's some sort of court case that's mentioned in the letters because the final correspondence is between the Bunny Codwell character, the Cecile Valange's mother, oh, and right. another friend who's reporting on what she's heard has become of Catherine. Oh, and right. it's also when she says, like, I had to send Cecile back to the convent because I can't believe she would fuck all those people. And also, I heard about Catherine. Catherine is, well, actually, the direct quote here is, At length, my dear and worthy friend, Madame de Matoy's fate is determined, and it is such that her greatest enemies are divided between the indignation she deserves and the compassion she raises. I was right when I wrote to you it would be happy for her to have died of the smallpox. Because, by the way, like, she gets smallpox. Oh, shit. But she doesn't die. She actually just gets really ugly because the letter continues she is recovered it is true but horribly disfigured and has lost an eye you may well imagine i have not seen her but i have been informed she is a hideous spectacle and we also learned that after whatever case went down about her estate she left in the night with all of her diamonds and fled to possibly holland (laughs) and so the (laughs) netherlands amsterdam somewhere in there and is where she is now, I guess, living in her disfigured, one-eyed <laughs> disgrace. So lots of happy endings for everybody Whoa. all around. And the fun thing is, like, as I mentioned at the way beginning, like there are footnotes throughout this thing, right? Like fake footnotes okay, from yeah. the fake author all the way through. And the final footnote of this novel is, Particular reasons and considerations, which we shall always think it our duty to respect, oblige us to stop here. We cannot at this time give the reader neither the continuation of M. de Valange's adventures nor the sinister events which fulfilled the miseries or ended M. de Martoy's punishment. We shall be permitted, perhaps, some time or another, to complete this work, but we cannot pledge ourselves to this. Even if we could, we should first think ourselves obliged to consult the tastes of the public, who have not the same reasons we have to be concerned in this publication." AKA, maybe at some future point, we'll do a sequel. (laughs) (laughs) But today is not that day because of public decency, sir. Public decency will not allow us to continue this horrid affair. Oh, hey, speaking of sequels despite public decency. Yeah, there are some of those. There are some of those. Like I said, I have watched these. You've recently watched these. Cruel Intentions 2. And three, <laughs> Cruel Intentions 2, as I understand it, was meant to be a TV show for the Fox network and was not picked up, so re-edited into a movie and also some more explicit nude scenes were shot to be inserted into the movie. It has kind of all the same characters in a strange way. It seems to be showing how Sebastian got to New York and met Catherine, and also Annette, and Cecile is there too. It doesn't mean Annette, so... Okay, at the end of the day, you watch Cruel Intentions 2, and you say, okay, one, why is this a prequel? Two, is that Amy Adams? Holy shit, that's Amy Adams! It is Amy Adams, yeah. So, Cruel Intentions 2 is 
all the right plot and all the wrong cast is really <laughs> how Cruel Intentions 2 goes. Because it is pretty much the exact plot-by-plot plot remake of Cruel Intentions 1 in some ways. Because you have Sebastian, who allegedly is arriving to the house for the first time. His father has married Catherine's mother, and they are getting together. Because of that, like, first miscasting is Sebastian, who is being cast as this kind of townie who has not yet been educated in the ways of sexual manipulation and sociopathy. And he's also just not that attractive in the right way of this, like, boyish charm. Like, Mm -hmm. nobody believes that he could just hold some chick's hand and, like, pull her off to lunch, as it were, because he seems too much like this actual naive good old Mm -hmm. small town boy and so it's like that's just not sebastian as a character and what's crazy to me is the cruel intentions too it's being made by the writer and director of the first movie yes that is true so i think it was because it was going to be a television series that that tends to be or was very popular in those early 2000s that kind of small town boy that gets brought into the Upper East Side elite. Mm-hmm. This is going to be the plot of Gossip Girl hey, <laughs> later on. I know. And it also was the plot of the Dawson's Creek spinoff series that also kind of got canceled. And so there's just this idea of we needed the the straight man or whatever to counterpoint this Upper East Side world. But Sebastian was not the right character to pick for that. Right. No, I mean, you watch the first movie. I never would... Imagine that Sebastian's origin story was anything other than always raised in this environment. Yeah, and he kind of has to be to make sense for Mm -hmm. the character by 1617. But this Cruel Intentions 2 is more or less the education of Sebastian Valmont, where he meets his stepsister, who seems like the Marsha fucking Brady of the Upper East Side, and then we realize she has a dark side. This is... Catherine being played by Amy Adams, who also is incredibly miscast. Oh, God. It just doesn't work. Amy Adams, great actor, but this is not the role that she should be playing. But she is trying to fuck with him and get him to try to join her sexual world of dark depravity. Meanwhile, there is a headmaster's daughter of sorts, who's not Annette, but a different chick, which I guess is why it's a new headmaster's daughter in Cruel Intentions 1, because this one also seems like she's sweet and innocent and doesn't have a lot of money. She works at a bookstore. And Sebastian falls for her genuinely first. She plays this hot and cold, eventually gets him to fully be into her. And at the end, she reveals that she's actually the best friend of Catherine. And the two of them have been fucking with him to prove to Sebastian that he can't let his emotions guide him or fall in love that it just has to be a sociopathic sex party and they all fuck in a limo and that's how that ends okay and there is a character i don't think she goes by a cecile but it's cecile yeah there's another different innocent naive chick that Catherine wants to ruin because she's always you know after ruining somebody and they bring her on board and she also has group sex with them in the limo at the end because like everybody's just like Big sex fiend, sociopathic sex party. It's great. And it's pretty much Cruel Intentions, but with the ending that everybody wanted. Just everybody getting down with their Mm -hmm. sexual sociopath selves. That limo driver at the very end? Played by the director. Oh. Little director's cameo There we go. Yeah. It did not get picked up, and so that remained its own little thing. So once again, right plot, wrong cast. The weirdest trivia I've heard about that 
whole thing is that there's this sequence in the show or in one of the episodes or in the final movie, I should say, where Amy Adams or Catherine's character is with the Cecile-ish character giving her horseback riding yeah. lessons. Okay, yeah, you know where I'm going with this. And well, I've seen the movie yeah, many times. Okay, yeah. And <laughs> the horseback riding is doing things to Cecile that she is does not know how to process. The motion and the vibration is doing things to her. And it seems like she doesn't really want to keep doing this, but Catherine is saying, like, no, keep going, keep going. And it's really uncomfortable. And the story that you hear behind this is that apparently at some point, Rupert Murdoch saw this and flipped his shit at what they were trying to do with this show. So that may have been part of the reason why they didn't really progress much further than that. I don't know, but for whatever reason, the idea of Rupert Murdoch getting really offended by that is hilarious to me. Yeah, it didn't seem forced or uncomfortable to watch for me. It's just a weird humorous scene where Catherine kind of teaches dumb bitch number one to... (laughs) masturbate with a saddle assist because in horseback riding especially if the horse is trotting there's something called posting right where you stand up and down from your saddle with the horse's movement but the horse is just standing there in central park and Catherine's teaching her how to post by going up and down but instead of just going up and down she's saying okay up and down back and forth up Uh. and down back and (laughs) forth and she has the little riding crop in her hand that she's hitting her palm with to keep time But the girl that she's instructing on posting lessons is just getting increasingly into this movement until she has an orgasm and then falls off the horse that doesn't move. The horse is just like there and just kind of looks at her and she just rolls over in the grass and looks up at the sky and is like, now I understand why girls like horses (laughs) or whatever. So... Yeah, it's not. It's, it's weird, but it's not like a, a forced non-con scene. It's just teaching this really dumb bitch how to masturbate with a saddle assist. Sometimes you need to know. It's whatever. You, you need that assist. I was going to say, it's, she's coming at it real late in life, but, you know, we all arrive at things at our own time. Hey, that's how you do it. Speaking of arriving at things at our own time, yeah, I got nothing. Cruel Intentions 3. Cruel Intentions 3. So- what the? I have never been so baffled by a movie in my life. That sounds strange because... I watch a lot of avant-garde cinema, and you would think, well, most of that's got to be really baffling too, right? Well, yes, intentionally so. Cruel Intentions 3, I don't think I'm meant to be confused as to whether or not these kids are on a cruise or in school, because I really can't tell with that movie. It's been a hot minute since I've seen it. You've watched it more recently. What is Cruel Intentions 3 all about? So Cruel Intentions 3 came out in 2004. So Cruel Intentions 2 did come out in 2000, a year after the original one. Okay. 2004, we see this movie that is only very, very peripherally connected to the original two in any capacity. The first two characters are main characters, one of which is one of the characters also on Dawson's Creek. So we've got another Dawson's Creek dude who's showing up. But not James Van Der Geek, but oh, different one. He and this Catherine-ish stand-in are checking into what seems to be college. Because <laughs> there's a sign that says that it's called Prestige University. So it is a university, allegedly. And they're coming back after the summer. Except for Catherine 2.0 
is arriving in a limo with people to carry her bags and stuff. But this campus is clearly some sort of almost community college looking campus that was designed in like the 1970s. They're in these very basic dorms. So if this is supposed to be some sort of elite private university for Cruel Intentions like characters, the setting is not supporting that. So you're like, where are you? But at the same time, they also seem to be right next to a beach and an Olympic sized swimming pool that they have access to because most of the scenes are gonna take place with all of our characters lounging on chairs around the Olympic sized swimming pool or in their very shitty dorm rooms. So it's a confusing kind of premise. But Catherine 2.0, at the very beginning, she is talking to Sebastian 2.0, and he reveals that she is Catherine's second cousin or something, her cousin or her second cousin, who, because of Catherine's shenanigans and her outing with Sebastian's journal, was a disgrace to the family and had to go into rehab or something. And... It made this cousin have to go, like, leave the state to go to college because, like, the family name was disgraced. And yet, he's like, and yet you still idolize Catherine and want to be her. And if you're going to idolize Catherine, at least let me be your Sebastian. <laughs> so that's the connection to Cruel Intentions okay. 1. And uh, that's the last any of the Cruel Intentions one or two plots will ever be mentioned again. But yeah. that's, you know, the setup that's happening in the first 10 minutes. And they will just kind of play sex games, right? It's just like these drawn out sex games and will they, won't they? Will Sebastian 2.0 and Catherine 2.0 get it together or get together and make it? But one of the dudes that is in this film as well, this character who initially pretends to be a nerd with a chronic coughing problem that due to some series of shenanigans ends up having sex with Catherine 2.0 because like Catherine was like bet money to like do it or something. I don't know. And then he reveals that his chronic cough hunch nerddom was all a ruse. And he's actually <laughs> a super sociopathic sexual mastermind named Patrick Bateman. <laughs> Which, what? for people not familiar with Patrick Bateman, what? is a Brett Easton Ellis character, what? most known from American Psycho, although he is also referenced in Rules of Attraction. But <sighs> he's Brett Easton Ellis' serial killer-like guy. So there's never any mention to it being connected in any way to American Psycho, but you get the sense that this is both simultaneously a Cruel Intention sequel and an American Psycho prequel. I mean... If you're gonna do a crossover, I could see a Brett Easton Ellis universe crossing over with the Cruel Intentions universe. Yeah, and it does yeah. right here with Cruel Intentions 3. So what the fuck? that's the most fun thing about Cruel Intentions 3 is you're like, is this a Patrick Bating American Psycho prequel? Okay, cool. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, man. And then we get the Cruel Intentions pilot from 2016. Now, I had never even heard of this thing uh, prior to you telling me a little bit about it before we uh, as we were getting ready to do this. And I'm honestly upset and confused that this didn't become a thing because this premise seems amazing to me. So, yeah, it is so amazing. Once again, also by Robert Cumble. So he yeah, yeah. does just he's locked in on the telling the cruel intention story and I really wish he had succeeded here on this one. Because 17 years later, direct sequel to the first one, 
Sebastian and Annette, as it turns out, in their one Counting Crows colorblind train station union, that resulted, that sex resulted in a pregnancy. So they have a son together. We have Annette and Sebastian's son. He finds the journal of his dead father and also the car that she still has stolen in her possession, I guess. It's been out in the barn. <laughs> so there's a dramatic scene where he takes the cloth off of this little Jaguar Roadster and has his father's journal. And he goes into the city because he needs to learn more about himself and his origins by learning who his father was. And according to the journal, the person to talk to about that is Catherine Matoy. And Catherine <laughs> Matoy, played by Sarah Michelle Gellar, is back. Fucking, oh my God, yes. So, yeah, she came back for this pilot. She was going to do the TV series. He comes back into town, and she pretends like she's super surprised to see him. Like, wait, my brother couldn't have had a son. That's impossible. And he's like, my mother was in Nut Hargrove. And so he, yeah, comes in for a discussion. We will later learn Catherine, she totally knows what's up this whole time because she has this photo album scrapbook of little Bash, I think Bash is his name, growing up like throughout oh, the years. Shit. So she's known about him. She also has some sort of subplot ploy to take back over the family Valmont kind of company and she wants to use the son to do it. She also might be kind of a little sexual depraved in love with Sebastian's offspring, because here's the best thing, is that Catherine has been obsessively in love with Sebastian all these 17 years, because she's got this office, and this office has four flat screen TVs behind her that she's able to, with a push of a button, conjure up these old photos of Sebastian in black and white with his sunglasses on. We also learn earlier in the pilot that she's allegedly in rehab for, or like AA and NA, but then she gets back to her office and she pulls out not a rosary, but a giant mirror cross box <laughs> that she lifts up the top of the cross and in it are these vials of Coke. And so she just does these long, huge fucking lines of Coke at the end here while she's sitting underneath this giant blown up flat screen picture of her brother. And she starts masturbating and at first it looks like sebastian might be alive and coming up the stairs because we see the trench coat or that frock coat and the sunglasses and then it does seem like she's maybe just imagining here we it does like confirm that she's imagining earlier or later we'll also see well i guess earlier because it's the end of this episode but she seems to hire call boys and prostitutes to pretend to be sebastian so that's great but She's having this fantasy that her brother has come and she's like, took you long enough, right? And he's like, I'm here to, you know, settle the bet or whatever. And so she's she's getting off. She's imagining fucking Sebastian finally fulfilling the bet because this has been an unsolved dream for 17 years. And Sebastian's son can see her through the window and watches her masturbate. What the fuck? And that's how the pilot to 2016 Cruel Intentions Continues ends. And like, why do we not have this? This is fucking amazing. It was so well done. I was honestly confused. Why was this not a thing? This is fucking amazing. Yeah, I don't know, because this just works. It was a pilot for NBC, and NBC decided not to pick it up, and I guess nobody else did when they were shopping it around, and that is a travesty, because... Yeah, it had a lot of the attitude that something like revenge would have and feel that kind of seedy, you know, sexual whatever. And Mm -hmm. it certainly isn't too sexual for NBC because NBC had Hannibal and Hannibal's like the most deliciously sexual, violent, 
odyssey of wonder. So I, I don't know. I don't know what happened, but. Well, you know, it's okay if the male cannibals want to sexualize things, but the female cannibals, they can't do it. That's probably, yeah, there's probably something there. I it's mean, like, well, it was a I'd... woman who was masturbating, so God forbid. So, top five. My honorable mention goes out to all of the teenagers who saw this movie and had a sexual awakening. Yeah, represent. There are many of them out there, I'm sure. And you know what? Wherever it happens, it happens, and it's beautiful, baby. Yeah. Your honorable mention. My honorable mention goes to the soundtrack. The soundtrack on this is so much fun. <laughs> Some iconic moments, that bittersweet symphony, the Verve oh. business, which apparently actually caused just as many legal problems on this movie as it did for the Verve themselves. Wow. because. Pretty shortly after them releasing that track, they got sued by the Rolling Stones. It was like the whole thing because they thought they riffed off of their track, which it, it's a whole court case. It took them decades to get the rights to their song back. Wow. And I was wondering if Cruel Intentions suffered from that at all. And the director mentioned, yeah, they did, that keeping that song ended up being the single most expensive thing in the entire film. <laughs> but it was important. I'm not surprised. And the credits, it does say Bittersweet Symphony written by Mick Jagger and the other guy. It's not though, because it's such bullshit too, because the Rolling Stones song that they allegedly sound too much like, it actually doesn't sound that much like the Rolling Stones song. There's a different dude who I think Mm. was a producer of some sort, like a music producer that took one of the Rolling Stones albums and did his acoustic version. And it does sound exactly like that track. Oh, but if okay. anybody deserves the rights to that song, it's that dude. The other guy. Except for that dude apparently was the one who ultimately gave the verb back their track because he didn't fucking care. <laughs> so it's the whole thing. He's a good guy. Yeah, look into that. It's crazy. All right. My number five goes out to the cast. Just all of them. Not really a weak link in the bunch. I definitely had feelings and things to say about the way that Selma Blair was playing Cecile in a few scenes, but really, every, all of them are good. So thank you, the cast. Okay. You're My number five. number five is the director of photography, Theo van de Sande. Mm-hmm. He is a Netherlandish fellow, born in 47, has done cinematography for 112 things. He does things. So yeah, he's been around, including Blade, which is really important to me. Huh. But why... He gets a shout out. The film is shot very beautifully, but it also is shot in a way that you don't tend to notice the cinematography. Mm. There's a lot of really great, beautiful, warm lighting and such. But from the director's commentary, you could take away just how much the DP here helped set the tone and pace of the movie, took on a lot of directorial roles in it. So he played a huge hand in getting this movie to come together. So. I dig it. Speaking of that director's commentary, my number four is the director, Roger Cumble. That director's commentary was just fascinating to listen to and really get uh, what a journey this guy was on with this being his very first movie and easily, how happy he was to collaborate with everybody and make it all happen. And film is a collaborative art. I think when you have a first-time director who doesn't have that auteur mentality towards directing, things happen and thing and good things happen and good things happened here so thank you director my number four goes out to john gary Steele, the production designer on this film the production is gorgeous 
everything is so pretty and lush and time periody on the director's commentary, which he was a part of. He went on and on about how much he always had wanted to do a time period piece and how hard it is to start out in the industry and get put on a time period piece. So when he got hired for Cruel Intentions, he tried to make it as time periody as possible. Very and he close. Succeeds. Yeah. <laughs> Who's your number three? My number three is the cinematographer you mentioned earlier, Theo Th- Van de Sande, the, uh, what did you say, Netherlander? Yeah. You mean Dutch? Also, yes. Okay, great. Well, yes, him. Like you said, this is not cinematography that really calls attention to itself. It's more just very effectively bringing attention to all the beautiful sets and the costumes in this movie. It's cinematography that just simply amplifies the story that is there already. And it's good. You're number three. My number three is Denise Wingate, the costume designer specifically Sarah Michelle Gellar slash Catherine Matoy's outfits. Holy shit, the chiffon, the silk, the heathered colors of peach and blush and seafoam greens. God, her entire wardrobe was just fantastic. There was the one outfit that the costume designer didn't like and that some of the people we were watching this with didn't like. I still loved it. It was the evening gown that Denise Wingate said was to Joan Crawford or Joan Collins. I can't remember which one she said it was. But it's the pink one that's a dressing robe that has the chiffon sleeves and the tucked in silk. It's not too dated. It's perfection. Wait, who was wearing that? Was that? Oh, Sir Michelle Gellar. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I thought it kind of had a had a uh, Catherine Hepburn thing going on. Yeah, it was great. But, you know, whatever works. It's great that that was your number three, because that's my number two, is our costume designer, Ms. Winstead. Thank you for everything, even that Australian shirt that Selma Blair wears at one point. I mean, <laughs> choices were made, and that was the correct choice for that, along with all these other fucking gorgeous outfits and suits that these kids are wearing throughout the movie. It just makes me goddamn happy, and it's a beautiful costume piece. It is a period piece movie. Just, you know, our own period, amplified and taken, made crazy. Yeah. You're number two. I should probably have another honorable mention in here for the editor, because the editing in this is actually quite comical and hilarious, mm-hmm. and it's very seamless in a lot of ways, in that there are a lot of things that get put back together in post that come from different parts of the movie, and we don't notice. So nicely done. But my actual number two is... The director, Roger Cumble, mm-hmm. because he is the man who apparently standing outside of a gym one day was like, you know what? I need to take this old French novel from the 1700s and I need to set it in a high school. What and happened in that gym? He also is going to be the guy that writes this screenplay and then goes on to direct for his first time ever this flawless iconic film. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to throw that down. I- I, I mean, iconic, I won't argue with. Flawless is another thing, but... There's, there's no flaws. Um, there's... Um, None. None at all. <laughs> and he also was really endearing in the commentary, basically exhibiting this really great mentality of, if you don't know what you're doing and you're surrounded by people who do, step back and let them do their thing. And he was very open about that. Love that. He also is stuck by Cruel Intentions for so long, writing Cruel Intentions too, and trying to do that uh, 2016 pilot. Never give up the dream, man. Keep never. going. Fight the good yeah, fight. Fight, fight it that, through. That cruel, beautiful fight. One day it'll happen. And just that to think that Cruel Intentions really was kind of one of the first of its kind of putting the really melodramatic old school vibe to high schoolers. Mm-hmm. that will later become a trope is kind of amazing. So Cruel Intentions is important. And Roger Cumble is the guy who brings that to us. 
Who is your number or what is your number one? All right. Well, this might sound strange because I already said the cast, but really my number one, my favorite thing about this movie is Sarah Michelle Gellar. Everything she does, all the things that she's doing in this movie, all the choices that she is making, the crazy ice queen delivery of so many of her lines and the great way that she delivers that beautiful, you know, the Marsha Brady of Upper East Side speech is just fantastic. And also just taking this role at a time when it was very much unlike what people were knowing her for at the time. This is not really a Buffy kind of role for her, and she's still going for it. And my God, when I saw her in that pilot that unfortunately was not picked up, I'm like, my God, she fell right back into the role. That is beautiful. So, yes, thank you, Sarah Michelle Gellar. You are my number one. Side note. Sarah Michelle Gellar did initially try out for Cordelia in Buffy. That was the role that she went in for, who is also a brunette, wonderful, spectacular bitch. Wow. I don't know who that is. Yeah. Well, she's a brunette, wonderful, spectacular bitch. She's the head cheerleader slash mean girl at the high school initially, who later becomes a staple character, especially in the spinoff Angel. But... Mm -hmm. Uh, played by Charisma Carpenter, ultimately, in the series, oh, okay. who I think initially actually tried out for Buffy, so they kind of like swapped him. This is uh, so confusing. Yeah, well, people who like Buffy might also, you know, care about that. Also, fun side note is that the woman who plays Cecilia's mother had teenagers, we learned in the commentary, that the reason why she took the role in Cruel Intentions is because her teenagers were big Buffy fans and they really wanted their mom to do a movie oh, with Buffy. Oh, <laughs> uh, Christine Baranski, yeah. So that, that's how she came on board. Now, my number one, number one. is the cast overall. Mm-hmm. I think this entire cast just really works, particularly, of course, Sarah Michelle Gellar and Ryan Phillippe. Mm-hmm. So the Sebastian, Catherine vibes they're bringing them we've got that weird boyish charismatic charm that ryan Phillippe is nailing and yes the goddess that is Catherine matoy happening <laughs> i really like eric mobius's performance in this as the gregster he's very oh. sweet and earnest i love gay joshua jackson i want so much more of gay joshua jackson and selma blair she's I think being told to play that role the way she is, and she's playing it. Mm -hmm. I I think kind of in a way, the only weak link is Reese Witherspoon, and not because of necessarily her acting or her skill level, just the character of Annette is just terrible, and I don't like her. So yeah, yeah, it's Mm. not Reese Witherspoon's fault, because my God, do I love her in things like Freeway. (laughs) So I have no problem with Reese Witherspoon, but she unfortunately... What's Freeway? Oh my God, Freeway is a super important movie in which she plays Little Red Riding Hood of sorts in a Los Angeles adaptation, a modern 1990s adaptation of Little Red Riding Hood, where she hitchhikes her way up the freeway to grandmother's house and gets picked up by Kiefer Sutherland, who is a serial killer that's trying to clean up the trash aka the people that he thinks do not deserve to live like trashy reese witherspoon okay yeah it's it's amazing and cindy crawford is randomly in it as Kiefer sutherland's wife weird yeah it's fun there's also a fuck my life film festival sequel to that starring natasha leone (laughs) oh I love Natasha Leone. Freeway 2, Confessions uh, of a Trick Baby or something like no, that. No, yeah. Natasha, I know. It's super fun. <sighs> but yes, the cast overall is spectacular and they nail it. They're bringing that energy, that youthful but sociopathic whatever that would set the mood for an entire forthcoming generation of television. Although not movies. I was reading an article about how 
Cruel Intentions was the last teen 90s teen movie of its kind. One, because it came out in 1999. Well, yeah. But in another way that once you had that, then you had the Not Another Teen Movie parody that included a lot of Cruel Intentions stuff. You have the Catherine character and the Sebastian character in that parody. But that it had pushed so many boundaries and was so taboo and over the top in terms of what high schoolers would have access to emotionally and sexually that the generation to come after it was kind of like parody stamped would be things like super bad where you would have these very down-to-earth very relatable (laughs) losers in high school tended to be suddenly like the Mm -hmm. new generation of 2000s teen movies so this article is talking about like the death of that type of movie i would disagree a little bit with it being the death of that teen genre entirely because what that genre ended up doing was moving to television and there's a whole bunch of reasons that that type of teen murder sexual sociopath like adult victorian ethos took over teen tv instead because there's just a lot more money to be had in teen tv in the early 2000s because of different Mm. like network deals that they were doing with record labels Mm. and with the sort of spread out of primetime times. So, yeah, we won't get into all of that, but there's a reason why teen movies became teen TV. And it wasn't just because nobody could top Cruel Intentions. Mm-hmm. It was because nobody could top Cruel Intentions without moving to multi-hour series on television. You needed more of it. Mm-hmm. Well, if anything, it's the world just said, okay, that's amazing. Now give me five seasons of worth of television of that. Yeah, which is why it's crazy that Cruel Intentions itself has had two failed TV series when there are a lot of other TV series that only exist because Cruel Intentions did it first. And so I guess another honorable mention slash person who should go right along with Roger Cumble is Amy Pascal, the head of Sony at the time, mm-hmm. who saw the script. Sony at first passed on the script when he first brought it to them. And that was at a time where there was a transition where then Amy Pascal came in after the former Sony head had left. She's like, why are we not doing this movie? And Roger Cumble's was like, oh, well, you passed on it before. She's like, not when I was studio head, like, let's do this. And she's like, trust your instincts, right? Like, make it crazy, make it big. And this is an R-rated movie with teenagers, about teenagers, for teenagers. Mm-hmm. That's generally not considered marketable. You want that PG-13 rating for your teen audience so teens could actually go to the movie theater and see it. Like, teens under 18 could not go to the theaters and see this. And so it was pretty bold and baller that they were just, yeah, giving it the R rating that it it had. Just the language that made it R rated? There's no nudity in the film. I think it's the themes of okay. sexual assault and violence and manipulation and incest. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of stuff. That's R-rated? Yeah, well, there were a couple of little moments that apparently they had to cut to get it on non-NC-17 rating. And it was weird stuff, like they couldn't show Sarah Michelle Geller snorting the coke up her nose, or they couldn't have more than two thrusts during the one sex scene that is actually in this. So it was little things, or some of the... The language or violence and yeah there's just a bunch of weird little things that give your movie ratings over others but thematically this movie was seen as way too adult for mm. a pg-13 audience but yeah i mean it is a bunch it's two step siblings that have a bet to fuck each other based on the parameters of who can manipulate and or sexually assault virgins first like that's a 
It's not 13 friendly premise, I usually, guess not, especially in the 90s. There's nothing more enticing to a teenager than being told, this movie's too hot for you to handle. Yeah. Cruel Intentions. It gave so much to the film and television landscape, to teen sexualities and psyches everywhere. Kind of incredible that Dangerous Liaisons, for hundreds of years, would continue to spawn so many adaptations. We didn't even get into all of the different international adaptations of Dangerous Liaisons as a novel because they're tangential and we don't have time. But just take my word for it, like this thing has been adapted for stage and screen just so many times. And that's incredible. One might even say that ultimately, as we safe word out here, it is the purest form of altruism. <laughs> just gives and gives and it takes nothing back. We might say that. I did say that. Altruism. A teenager's romance is fickle or true. A teenager's romance is red hot or blue. You're either in misery or high on a crest. A teenager's romance is like all the rest. They tell us we're different. We haven't the right to decide for ourselves, dear. What's black and what's white. Keep saying you love me And they'll look upon A teenager's romance That goes on and on A teenager's romance That goes on and on escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!